Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I've tried to clear my way with logic and superior intellect, but you've given my words a meaning that I never dreamed of. The great impasse has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man! I'm a very good man. Good man. They think deep thoughts, and with no more brains than you have. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, I just have this weird feeling that we're going to have a few more downloads for this episode than some of our other ones. I don't know why. I think that uh, Paul Bloom somewhere is shedding a tear that he's not the most downloaded Very Bad Wizards guest. (laughs) A single tear? A single tear. A single tear for us. (laughs) Yes, self-empathy. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) An excess of self-empathy. And that is Sam Harris. Uh, welcome back, Sam. Thank you. We all know Paul very well, and we love him. And he actually has quite a bit of empathy. I don't know why he's so mad. So I think angry. he walked in on empathy with his, you know, like <laughs> first girlfriend or something. I don't know. Yeah, actually, I, I love his stuff on empathy. I, I think it's uh, – we're not going to go there, but I think it's um, very interesting and counterintuitive and, and uh, useful. Yeah, no, he's – He's right about a lot of it. It's just he's just wrong about the very end bit <laughs> for, for another time. Um, Not so. But. We're gonna get back into a, a little bit of the moral responsibility debate and sort of broaden that to moral disagreement in general. Talk about some of the issues also that you talk about in the moral landscape and just see where the discussion goes. Uh, I will say, just to start out, Sam, that I, I saw an interview with you, and while we may not agree on moral responsibility, we agree on comics. In that you said that you are a big Bill Burr fan, and oh yeah, he, he, he's you know he's in my top three. Also, I, I love him. You know, also from I'm from Boston, so yeah, he's uh, You're... he's just fearless and hilarious. Have you seen that footage of him? Basically facing down a, a an unhinged, I think Philadelphia audience. Philly at a, crowd. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a, it, amazing. Yeah, it was just a crowd that for some reason just just started booing the comics. It was like a series of comics that were coming out. So he just decided that he was going to just start ripping into to Philadelphia and all of them, and he sort of won their grudging respect. I yeah, think. no, it was amazing because he was just up there defending like, all the previous comics and totally off the cuff just decided to just trash Philadelphia until he <laughs> he finally turned them to his side. Uh, we were just just by uh, the balls he was showing to do it, it was it was hilarious. Yeah, Philadelphia is no joke, man. I don't know where I don't know where it got the city of brotherly love moniker. No, it's the city that boos Santa Claus. 
<laughs> they booed Santa Claus at a Eagles game. I want to say say why you know you say this stuff like well he's from Boston. You're so partial, it makes me like fall on Sam's side about this stuff. You're just shamelessly partial about Boston. It's a complete accident that you were born there. I yeah, just... but that doesn't mean you can't be partial to it. <laughs> At the expense of other great comedians, like Bill Cosby from Philadelphia. Bill, you want to talk about Bill Cosby Day? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't at all. I don't at all. But but let's talk about shaming a little bit. Yeah. Uh, this sort of flows nicely from our last episode where we talked about a Black Mirror episode called White Bear. And I guess we don't want to spoil it too much, so I'll just note that it follows nicely from it. But there was a great New York Times Magazine article written by John Ronson, who's – I guess it's going to be part of this book – who mm-hmm. he just tracked down a bunch of people whose lives were destroyed by somebody publicizing either a tweet that, or, you know, like an overheard comment. Um, but, but, the, but the focus of it was how this sort of anonymous <clears throat> mob can come and just ruin a person's life based on an offhand observation or remark. That's mm-hmm. something that we might say in our homes and... People know us and chuckle. I thought it was fascinating. It was a um, we can all sense that this is happening on Twitter and uh, I guess social media generally. Although Twitter, I think, seems to lend itself to it more than than anything else. And it's um, I mean, it's a little bit like the the you know that that film, The Wicker Man. You know, where you just have this primal all everything is tending toward this this very primal human sacrifice. Uh, warranted or unwarranted, uh, and often totally unwarranted, and it's a um, it's really something to see. I, don't, I certainly think it's bad for us on on every level. But this this story, I somehow miss this story of um, Justine Sacco, who, whose name is probably familiar to many people listening to us. But I, I had never heard of her, and and just the the story of how this thing took off while she was on a on a flight to South Africa. I, mean, I guess we should just give the details. She was. She she uh, she was in the habit of of tweeting you know somewhat off color tweets. Though if she were a stand up comic, if, if this were Sarah Silverman, she could have tweeted everything she tweeted and never had anything right. happen to her. I mean she's she's just paying the penalty for not being not having a career as a stand up comic because there's nothing here that is that is actually egregious, um, and at least in in my view, although nothing she, as funny also as a stand up comic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it's just it, uh, that's true. But but it, she 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 tweets this tweet when she she before she gets on a on a flight to Cape Town from um, from London, she tweets going to Africa. Hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding. I'm white. Uh, where uh, there she she's I mean, it's, you know you couldn't you can debate whether it's funny at all, but it's clearly she's not some sort of white supremacist who really thinks that whites don't get AIDS or I mean she's sending up the 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 obtuseness of, you know, white privilege uh, in that tweet. And then anyway, she gets on this plane. She has like no followers on Twitter. She's got something like, what, like 150 followers 100 on Twitter. Something, yeah, yeah, 100 something, yeah. And, and, and yet while she, in the 11 hours she's on this plane, this takes off, becomes the number one trending topic on Twitter and the just raises a tsunami of hatred against her and more or less destroys her life. Uh, so it's just it's a fascinating phenomenon. I don't know if you want to uh, dig ima- into the details Im- of it. Yeah, imagining those eleven hours where everything is happening and she has no idea is just so cringe, cringe-inducing. Yeah, the, the, the tweets are, you know, 
that there there is something off-putting about them. She tweeted, I'm, I'm sitting here in first class. The German guy next to me forgot to put on deodorant or something like that. Just the idea of complaining while you're sitting in first class. But again... The, the 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 outrage and the sort of sanctimony. But let me let me mount a a, a bit of a of a defense here, not for the legion of of hatred, but rather for the reaction that any one person might have upon seeing her tweet. Uh, Sam, I think you're right to point out that had somebody like Sarah Silverman tweeted this out, nobody would have even batted an eye. But that's there is something that is is really lacking from one tweet which is the the knowledge that you get about the intentions behind the tweet and one of the things that Sarah Silverman gets is the knowledge that you know she's sort of equal opportunity insult this is her career it's funny uh this is something that that this woman obviously does not get and so it's not entirely obvious that she's not actually very lightly talking about white privilege in a way that that might indicate that she doesn't get something. And here's the part that I want to defend, though. Every single person who might read this without rage, I don't think it's necessarily sanctimony. It is if you read something racist or really, really, if you believe it to be racist, in this case, I think there's reason to believe that it might be racist. Any single individual who reads it is, I think, justified in finding it very disdainful and even saying that it is. Uh, yeah, but, what uh, happen- but what happens is just, you know, Twitter. Like this, you know, you get 10,000 people doing it all at the same time. And all of a sudden you have you have what might have been an even useful series of human emotional responses to somebody who does something off putting like that, which is to shame them, you know, to shake your finger at them. But now you get the crowds doing it to you. I I disagree. I don't think it's my business. Like, yeah, there are racist people out there. Let's say she's racist. It's not my business. Like I, it's it's none of my business to like start showing how not racist I am by criticizing some person I don't know for a tweet. The intentions you ca- you criticize people you business. don't know all the time. In fact, you're criticizing them for being sanctimonious. Like there's no difference between not, your criticism no, I, and theirs. I'm not I'm not going after actual people that did this and and sure. and and going out on Twitter and and tossing them out. I'm 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 saying on the podcast that I don't that for me personally I disagree with you that it's useful in any way for me to call that out especially for a non No, no I'm not figure. I'm not defending that it's useful. I'm saying that it is an emotion that, you know, well, I'll, could I'll very defend, well evolved for its I'll defend it's useful yeah. actually. I I, th- I think there's a middle path here which because I I've been on the receiving end of this kind of thing a fair amount and um uh, I mean not not to this degree obviously and I've also seen the impulse both in myself and in people and in my readers to do likewise to other people. And there are people who I think deserve it. I, I really think there are people who are sufficiently uh, dishonest and malicious in the way they're showing up in public and they have enough of a platform to be doing real harm that I think they this sort of Twitter mob mentality could be appropriately directed at them and it would be some kind of you know justice however rough meted out and i think it actually does correct people's behavior i think people are much more careful and and certain people should be than than they would otherwise be uh, but the crucial thing for me ethically is the unwillingness to understand what a person actually meant and and once you understand it once once it becomes absolutely plain that in this case this person is not a white supremacist this is not a racist it was a 
a bad joke and a joke actually designed to mean the opposite of what it seems, um, then this and this is where the line gets crossed into just just totally malignant mob behavior. The the unwillingness to revise your feelings about the person uh, and to hold them accountable to the thing you think they meant or, or, or have thought they meant in the first place, even though that that assumption has been disconfirmed. And and in the worst case still, and I, and I actually get a lot of this from, you know, the, the Glenn Greenwalds of the world. You know, he, so he, he'll, he'll totally misunderstand something I said. When I clarify what I meant, which is actually the opposite of what he assumed, he will in his capacity as some kind of omniscient Freudian analyst, will pretend <laughs> to find in me the thing he thought I said, even though I'm not aware of it. He'll say, no, 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 you really are a racist. Uh, you just don't know it, essentially. And then hold me accountable right. to the, the racism he thought he found in me, uh, which is just insanity. And so, and, and, and that's, okay, that's but, where but I think Sam, it becomes really, really unethical. You're a public figure. You're a public figure with a, a lot of influence. I know... I, I, I've suffered from your influence disagreeing <laughs> with you because now I have people going after me on Twitter. That's that's a totally different ball game than taking some person who has no influence, who has 150 followers, calling her out publicly. That strikes me as busybody kind of behavior well, no, that I mean, we but, should discourage. But look, this wasn't a private email. I mean, you there is part even even if it was excessive a reaction, uh it's it takes some sort of insanity to think that that um just because you have 150 followers and you post something publicly, one retweet isn't gonna like can't potentially reach the entire world. And I, I mean maybe it's just an error on her part, but it's an error that we have to hold people responsible for for their behavior in in a sense, what is essentially the public. I mean, even if you have 150 followers, would would she make that joke in front of a crowd of 150 people? Um, I, I mean, it's easy to make that mistake on her part, but it's not it's it's not clear to me that, especially as a PR person, that that, that the defense can be that other people are just busybodies because. She she is not a public. Tweet. I agree. She shouldn't have tweeted it. I don't understand the people who tweet those kinds of things. Like, what do they think is going to happen? We have <laughs> enough evidence that people are going to be find the least charitable interpretation of your tweet possible. So I, I I'm not defending her doing it, but what I'm also not willing to do is defend the mob, even an individual who didn't know that it was going to cost her her job or anything like that. I think yeah. it's just but like move on. Like you have, there's other things that you can up occupy yourself with more. But that's different from what you were saying about uh, Sam knowing that he's a public figure and her not knowing. Like she's just sort of like, you know, private messaging somebody. I mean, this is there is no there's no line anymore between as you say, people didn't didn't know who you were, and all of a sudden, right? They they're getting on you. Like you're you're a public figure if you have five followers on Twitter because the potential for being a public figure is yeah. So yeah. I don't think there's a line to dividing. The Sam Harris's of the world and the, this woman's of the world. No, I mean there really isn't. Don't you you don't know. You know she's got a hundred and fifty Twitter followers, and then she'll have three hundred, and then she'll have a thousand, and and all of in, in each with each of these tweets, she's publishing an opinion to a significant group of people. Uh, given that all of those people sit atop their own Twitter followers, and and so you know, you know right. if, if you if you've got one person following you who happens to have five hundred thousand followers. 
you know, you're just one tweet away from a very big audience. And, and I get a, a tweet. She's not tweeting opinions. She's tweeting about the opinions of sitting next to a German guy who didn't put on she, deodorant. And by the she, way, there's uh, empirical evidence to back her up. <laughs> it was that they shower the the least often. I think there was something in the this Atlantic. Is, you can't be serious about it. <laughs> it's not so now, now you're going to double down and disparage the Germans on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Any chance I get. We're, we're lucky people only listen to the first five minutes of these things. So yeah, I mean, I don't. I think it's but, hard to draw the line, and and, and also she, I mean, clearly she she's someone who's just trying to create a a clever persona for herself on Twitter. But there are people who succeed in doing this, and they're they, they're not even formal stand up comics. They just they just tweet edgy things in ways that right. many people find funny, and they and they get huge followings, and and that's their cachet. And then they. Then once they have more or less written that rule book for themselves, then everyone is forced to give them the the space to to be highly un PC, except when they. I mean, there's a line there. It's just further. But occasionally, you find a, a stand up comic who crosses a line, and then has to apologize. You know, to get on you know Oprah or Letterman or yeah, whatever and, and apologize. Actually, uh, that's what I was going to ask. Do you think that 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 uh... This woman ought to have apologized. Well, I, like, she what, could she could apologize for her ineptitude. I don't think she. I, again, now I'm, I, I could be reading too much into this. I don't know her. I don't know what she's actually like. But the sense I got from the article is that this was just a, a bad joke that misfired, but it didn't reveal anything right. bad about her. And if and the thing that uh, that really uh, I just I find deplorable and depressing and 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 um, indefensible is is when it becomes clear. What a person's intentions actually are when you actually when you actually have a kind of X-ray view onto their minds, and you're re- given their past history, given you know all the people who arise into their defense, given everything they subsequently say, you know this person is not was not expressing racism but or Sam, your first let's impression. Say she wa- her intentions were bad. Do you do you then defend the response? Let's say she is a little racist and she was making a slight racist joke. I'm not saying this is true. I, I, I like you. I don't know what she was thinking right. when she tweeted <clears throat> it. But for the sake of argument, someone like her does that. And yeah, it's because she's a little racist that she did it. And she was. Are you then OK with what happened in response? I, I, to that? I think it, I, I think it's. It's probably disproportionate, and but you know that's that's sort of what happens to you if you're a racist. Uh, you're just left to your own devices to collide with 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 the mob. I, I think it's it's not. Um, I don't think it's a big deal. I, th- I you know I think I think there should be a penalty for being uh, a racist, even in private and and uh, in public. There should be a bigger penalty. I just think I think racism is. Obscene. Should, lose your, uh, should she have lost her job if she was racist? Should she be fired? Well, it's not well, unreasonable I, to want to fire someone for in, who's in PR. Well, the PR know. part is different. The idea that she couldn't lose the the idea that she shouldn't lose her job also suggests that maybe you should be obliged to hire someone knowing that they're racist. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't want a racist working for me. And and I mean, we can discount. Let, let's just bracket as as scientists the admission that. We're all a little bit racist, and if we're all given the, the no, but you that's know, that's implicit... important, right? right. That's well, yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I, I'm not, I'm not advocating a, a kind of a self-deceived 
notion of 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 our purity right, from right. the problem of racism and i know that an, an implicit apperception test would show that you know we're all um uh kind of subtly uh racist but right. the, the, the 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 non-racism doesn't entail does not entail um absolute psychological and emotional purity on this point it just entails a commitment to the norm of transcending all of the all kind of our, our natural xenophobia and racism and whatever you know bugs we have in the software and hardware. So if you if you see someone who uh, is indulging their racism because they think it, they think it's a, a norm worth maintaining, well then that person I think is is due some serious pushback. And and I think that here again, like the the. The the problem about being disproportionate in the punishment from the crowds is just the problem that that comes from from Twitter. It, to get back to to Sam, what you were saying a bit earlier, once you know, once we know what somebody actually meant, I mean, this is a huge problem with a you know 140 characters and no knowledge of who's doing the writing. Um, that can be a really difficult thing to do, and and even when someone comes out and says that's not what I meant. Um, I don't, I, you know, I understand being skeptical uh, about that. We, we we have a paucity of cues as to somebody's underlying character in these situations. That yeah. doesn't usually yeah. happen in everyday life. Tamler and I have o- often talked about this uh, sort of, you know, our audience is is probably very patient with us. But part of it is that, you know, hopefully you listen to to an episode or enough episodes and you, you see who we are and why a joke taken in isolation um, might not indicate nefarious on Tamler's case. A lot of people's first reaction to us is, you know, like the same right. sort of South Park kind of reaction is, how do they get away with it? <laughs> and the same, and I think the answer is because they know that ultimately we have good hearts and we're not, but, but, but we, we had to build that before we could say all yeah. the repugnant shit that we say. It could all go away easily. Totally. With one, right. I, I can't, like, I'm just waiting for that. <laughs> <laughs> For that, for that Twitter mob, like I know you're out there somewhere. And it's speaking of the Twitter mob, um, I was playing the world's smallest violin for your for your appeal to sympathy for getting shit from Sam's followers. Um, no, no, no. She, I, I, I don't. Uh, I, I actually meant to just say that the idea that there is a difference, I think, between Sam Harris who and some PR person on a trip to Africa, you know, and I know it can get retweeted, but they're not going to convince people. It's not like, oh, now that she said that, I think German people smell and that yeah, white people that's... can't get AIDS. It's not like there's <laughs> no influence. That's not the concern that people are going to be convinced that she's right. Well, what's I mean, the concern then? What is the concern exactly? I, well, let's get to that because you've just, I think, shown your true colors um, about being a closeted consequentialist. Maybe we should actually be, <laughs> because I don't think the idea of an offensive comment is that it will actually cause people to be racist. Like, no, I, I, think I, I agree. It's offensive. It's wrong. She shouldn't have done it. But that doesn't mean there, there's a gap between that and I need to get involved in this and, and express because this is the part that I hate about Twitter mobs. And we talked about this is that it's I'm not doing it because I was that offended by the comment. I'm doing it because I want to show to the world how morally superior i am to a person like that maybe but i i still maintain that you're doing something like the same thing by attributing these ill intentions or these like this moral high horse like 
somebody gets on, I think that it's deplorable what she said. I see it retweeted in my stream. It's just the, it's just the shit that like I would say like this is deplorable and retweet it. Like I don't I don't think that you need to attribute any sort of 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 desire to to be superior. And I guess this is what I'm saying is that locally the masses of people who are shaming her are all just individually reacting to various things. Some people might be doing it for publicity. Some people might be doing it because, you know, their friend just died of AIDS and they're really hurt at this comment. Like it doesn't, I don't know that, that, and, and then what happens is it snowballs because it's Twitter. Well, I, I guess, I guess the thing that Tamler, you're most um, annoyed by is that the, the disproportionality that is the result of the ease with which someone can weigh in in this case. So the, the fact that this can just take off uh, you know, by the, the tens of thousands uh, at no cost to the, to the mob, really, because it just takes, it, it just takes nothing to, to tweet your condemnation of this. I mean, you're, you're essentially doing right. it anonymously. That's and exactly so there, right. there, re- there really is no, you don't have any skin in the game, and yet you are actually materially, you know, ratcheting up the, this consequence for the, for the other person. And, and it can just get out of reg. I mean, it, it is bizarre that this person seems to have paid a greater pi- price than than people who have done truly horrible things in the world. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, and, and so this is, and, you know, that, and you know that seems the, the, it reminds That reminds me of what you just said. So after the Charlie Edbo attacks... I remember you were tweeting something. There was a hashtag called spread the risk. And Mm -hmm. the idea was (laughs) there that it's not fair for just a few places to bear all the risk of these kinds of attacks like Charlie Edbo because they're just willing to do it. And the idea was if everybody does it, and this is why I was so infuriated by the New York Times not publishing like their next cover. If you're not willing to do that, then you're like free riding on the willingness of other outlets to 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 show because we can end up seeing it. We just can't see it on the mm-hmm. New York Times. So it's like they're taking themselves by that by that unwillingness to put themselves at risk. They're 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 putting the, the, the risk on other people, and that's what I took to be the spread the risk idea. Yeah. And as you just said, the thing that bugs me about this is there's no risk to condemning some random stranger who's on a flight to Africa. There's just no risk. There's nothing. You're not the, the condemnation can only benefit you because it shows that you have the right thoughts about this kind of issue. Right. And there's another element here where, where it just it, there's kind of there's a delight that is not even concealed uh, in right. watching the immolation of somebody's reputation in real time uh, in front of for, yeah. you know, for all the world right. to see. And it, Shade and Freud. It, and, that, yeah. and that's why uh, that's why articles like the one in The New Yorker, I think, do a good job. You know, if you're going to condemn somebody publicly, it's good to know what you're what you're doing what the consequences are of what you're doing. But, you know, this is part of me wants to just fall back and say, this is the nature of the beast, man. You should just get off Twitter if, if this is a concern. But at the same time, you know, given this exact discussion we were having about the Black Mirror episode and the branges and, and the delight people take, yeah, you know, there is there is something like, if, if only we could, pa- like, stop people and say, these are the, you know, that first person who had whatever, 100,000 followers who retweeted it. 
say these are the consequences. Yeah. Right? This, this is, but I, I think they're, that they're the, there's a background problem here, which is, is a real problem for us, which is this sanctimony and political correctness and the pretension of being someone who would never say something like this or make an off laugh at an off-color joke, and you're willing to mete out this kind of brutal justice to somebody who's doing something that you may have done an hour ago. Uh, just uh, perhaps, uh, you know, in a, in a in a different context, and um, that I think is, uh, is, is I mean, it's a lack of empathy, it's a lack of self knowledge, and it it has a, a huge effect on public discourse. I mean, this is and it's uh, this is something that, that Nietzsche captured in in one of his aphorisms. It, it goes something like, you know, whenever you force a person to change his mind about you. He holds the cost, the cost of it, very much against you, or something like that, or the the, mm. the, the trouble yeah. you've caused him very much against you. Although I I am just a, a little concerned about your blanket sort of. I mean, there there is reason to be indignant, and there is reason to call people out on their bullshit sometimes. Like I yeah, it I sounds, agree. Personal like well, people like that, that that are in your presence that you know. No, you it's Twitter. What on. do you mean? I mean, but it's Twitter. We do this all the time. This is just. I mean, there is nothing wrong with calling some random person who chose to publish something that is potentially viewable by the entire world. If they say something like it's not, I mean, look, I don't, I, I don't care to do it, but I don't think that that pointing out like, wow, that was really, really shitty of you to say, and posting it is any worse than them posting something that they should have thought twice about. I mean, that's fine. It might not be any worse, but they're both bad. But, but Tamler, you, you agree it should happen to public figures. So you you just have different occasions where you think it's warranted. It should happen to public figures, and it should happen to people who you know. Or who you're in the presence yeah, of, right? Okay. I don't but think I, like that. It's my business to govern like the etiquette of strangers. Yeah, but you get you, but you reserve the right to condemn some immoral actions if there is. You drew the line between etiquette and 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 I assume that what you meant in contrast to etiquette is real, in, like a real moral infraction. In which case, it would be okay right. to publicly condemn. Like someone. the New York Times not publishing the Charlie Edbo cover. To me, it was something that that deserved to be called out. You know? Right. So, so I guess that what I'm saying is that it's not so much the sanctimoniousness or the the moral high ground that really is driving you. It's that you just don't feel that these infractions that you call etiquette infractions are actually deserving of this sort of punishment. That's what turns it from good, healthy outrage to sanctimony. Well, I mean, some people just genuinely believe that a, a public racist remark that they at least as they perceive as publicly racist is the sort of thing that the pu failing to publish the charlie eggbo cartoon would be to no, you i like think that's, just, that's a, what... just re imagine if this was a just a straightforward racist statement uh from a, you know just a a white supremacist who happened to be a publicist working for some major corporation i forget where, where she was working but you know here's someone who is just straight up saying that you know, kind of laughing about the AIDS epidemic and and saying that you know, you know given her you know genetic uh, superiority, you know she was was insusceptible to it. Uh, you know that would be uh, and 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 was so confident in this opinion that she could just publicly espouse it to to strangers. You know, I th I think it is shocking behavior. I, w I w you would think her employer would want to know about it. You would think uh, you know I don't see why you think that's just a a private faux pas that that 
no, 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 no one the, should the, the, push I mean, back look, against. If the employer wants to fire her because she did do it publicly, and especially she's on a PR, you know, like, and it reflects bad on the on on the firm or whatever, then that's his business or her business. Like, I, there was another case that was talked about in the article, which is those two guys talking about in the in the some sort of video game yeah, or some sort of a, tech I, firm. Some it was of, a tech conference, and yeah. somebody made a joke about a dongle. Right. Oh yeah! And oh, that was even all, stranger. Uh, and the and some woman overheard that and dongle first. Like I just got a dongle because I got one of these Fitbit ridiculous things. <laughs> like there's no way not to make a joke about that. There's no. <laughs> it's not humanly possible not to make a joke about something called a dongle. There's something wrong uh, with you if you don't make that joke. Right. <laughs> you should be you should be shamed on Twitter if you if you fail to make that joke. <laughs> so that one is a different case where it was clearly just the, the, there was nothing. There was no issue there and and i I, what i don't in that case like the twitter shaming and all that takes a backseat to the to the boss that fired that guy for for making that little obvious joke there's a real difference he wasn't saying it publicly right i mean he was overheard you know he didn't bother he didn't post this joke on twitter right and i think there's a big difference but 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 what's not a big difference is then that the, the person who posted it on twitter then got attacked in the same way that, and again, even though I'm against her reacting that way, I'm also against the people that that were so publicly outraged that her life became a living hell because of it too. It's yeah. like these things, if we just chill out about some of these things a little bit, that none of this has to happen. She can make her little tweet and they can make their dongle joke and we can all go on with our lives and, and like focus on like actual moral. Yeah, I mean, no, but this, I mean, there is there is. I, OK, so maybe we should move on. But but I do want to reserve the right to say that there can be deep problems, as Sam's example, sort of a real racist that are pointed out on Twitter. I think the real problem here is our inability to to sort of actually understand what the technology of, of the Internet is doing to us and how it's it's making brain this sort of brain is easier this delight in in the punishment of others easier and and actually making our all of our comments public in a sense that we have never had you know as a species we've never had this sort of potential audience again for me it comes down to just really understanding where a person is coming from and once you once you arrive at that understanding beyond any reasonable doubt and 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 i I more or less think we we always do, then hold them accountable for that, not for the accidents that may have occurred along the way or the misperceptions that occurred along the way. And then, but if if you imagine if there it was really some uh, malicious uh, psychopathic intent behind uh, anyone's you know Twitter rambling. Uh, and then right. the then the mob exposed it. You'd feel, oh, okay. The, well, the mob actually did its job here, or at least at least I would. Right. Yeah, I, yeah, that's fine. Like the fact that there are conceivable cases where the Twitter mob does a good job. In fact, there are. But but the but the power imbalance of the whole thing. It, again, let's say there was some mild racism in that woman's tweet and yes she did it publicly and yes i don't get why you would do that but it's just then the mob becomes so powerful and 
she becomes so nakedly exposed to the and vulnerable that you know it's just it's not there's something not right about that there's something and it's happened actually it's actually become a serious problem with with a lot of people on twitter especially there's been i don't know if you guys are familiar with this gamergate controversy no no matter what these are these are female bloggers who have sort of uh, um, come out publicly to, to talk about sexism in in the video game industry um but there you know no matter what side you're on about about uh, uh, you know about whether there really is sexism in these video games these people are getting actual death threats um and this is one of the things that that this technology like twitter allows uh it, it just lets you reach out and touch anybody in the world and sam you've probably you probably felt this anybody in the world can actually send something directly to you and find any personal detail and and threaten you and now you have to live in fear um and it's- yeah and also i would say that even being a, a reasonably public figure with his own small twitter mob behind him you know i am helpless before uh this this force as well and when when i see lies circulated against me um or about me there there's very little i can do to push back. I mean, I, 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 and I've, it was not for want of right. trying. I think I've tried to a fault. I mean, for, for years I did nothing as people, uh, told everyone who was listening that I wanted to execute a nuclear first strike against the Muslim world or that I wanted to round up Muslims for torture, uh, et cetera. I mean, just extreme, uh, uh, distortions of of my actual arguments on topics like nuclear proliferation and and the ethics of torture um and yet this stuff gets spread around and once it's spread there's there's nothing you can do to to uh, to roll it back and the very effort makes you seem like this this petty person who's overly concerned about his reputation all the while your reputation is being materially destroyed and you can actually you know i there's there's almost not a common thread in existence that doesn't have some litany of lies about my views and they're they're very consequential because they they actually get circulated by uh journalists and and other public right. figures who who have some other reason to hate me and they, they get circulated without any uh, qualm yeah, and and so this is uh, I mean, so and these are even journalists. I mean, people you know like Murtaza Hussein, who works for the Intercept, Glenn Greenwald's colleague, and then Glenn Greenwald will circulate his tweet, and all the while knowing that because I pointed it out to him that is not it's the the inverse of what I meant. Uh, uh, he will circulate it, and so will Reza Aslan. And now you're talking about people who have hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers, and it's it, there's there's virtually nothing you can do about it. Uh, and this is just an artifact of the the technology space we're all living with. It's almost ridiculous. Like, I, I mean, oh, it is absolutely ridiculous that the power with which people can spread little snippets of conversation. All right, let's take a break. And then when we come back, we can do some misrepresenting of our own.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, we're here with again with Sam Harris and Tamler Summers. I wanted to say one thing. We we posted on Facebook that we have picked winners of our t-shirt contest. And the drinking game it. t-shirt. The drinking, the drinking game t-shirt contest. Vlad Chiduck, and who's the other? Uh, well, Mark Erickson had just the idea of a very bad wizards drinking game, but so he Vlad won. He he wanted to. This can take us. He wanted to just drink every time we use the word intuition. <laughs> right, always... which I, I fear in this segment will mean that everybody gets shit faced. Um, but we're gonna actually post. We have the t-shirts almost ready to go and to set up for order. I think they they're looking good. It will be a way in which you can support us by ordering a t-shirt. Um, we'll post a link to where you can order the t-shirt, and we'll ask you to spread it around. But we also wanted to thank you guys for all of the emails, the tweets that we've gotten. You can you can tweet us at at very bad wizards, uh, at peas at tamler, um, and you can support us by rating us on iTunes, giving us a review. Or going to our website and clicking on the Amazon link and sh- doing some shopping through Amazon. But really, thanks to all of those who, who especially after the last episode with Sam, we got a legion of, of listeners who, who actually went out and supported us. Thanks to all. Yeah, and- thanks to everybody. You can also support us directly if you're out of the country through PayPal. And we really appreciate all the tweets. There was a great comment thread that we really didn't have much to do with if anything on the last episode that that just raised a whole different issue about the black mirror episode and we've gotten a bunch of emails to this effect as well about the kind of the way personal identity plays into that and it was just fun to see a really cool conversation going even though the sort of premise of it was there is this really interesting thing that we didn't talk about it was really cool to see that conversation going on on the Facebook page. So we urge you right. to, to like right. us there as well. We have one of the people uh, on the drinking contest, I think, mentioned uh, to take a drink whenever uh, David and Tamler fail to point out the most interesting part of, of any given topic. That's sometimes just true. You know, we have we have very smart listeners. And, you and I think you're going to have more fun drinking to, to the word intuition for this episode. I know. I know. You <laughs> might you might wind up in the hospital. <laughs> I might just out of pure just fear for people's safety, I might just use like attitude or <laughs> consider judgment or something like that. I I don't want to be responsible for people's deaths. <laughs> right. Plus All it's right. like, you know, it's per- it's fairly early in the day for us. So, but one of the things that the the Twitter legion was really asking us to do this episode with Sam was to to pick up a, a bit where we left off because it was kind of a stalemate, right? Yeah, well, I, I believe Tamler f- formally dubbed it a, uh, a dialectical Tamler's stalemate. Is that the John Fisher's term, or um, that's the John Fisher I th- term? I, yeah, the dialectical. Yeah, I, th- stalemate. I think we yeah. should we should all explain wh- how we view the stalemate and then just move forward. Because I actually I don't I'm hopeful that it's it's not a true stalemate. Although it's, that's either giving more credit to. Uh, my powers of persuasion or uh, self-deception. I don't know. Well, right. the reason so, I'm convinced that it's a stalemate is that I used to hold your position for you know roughly the same reasons that you hold it. I do think that ultimately this is a moral disagreement about what's the appropriate response to certain types of what everyone agrees is wrongdoing. Yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think the response is a secondary question. It's like, because my response may not be so different from yours in in many specific cases I, but I, I do think the the underlying 
structure of the stalemate, it comes down to what we were saying about intuition, about the primacy of intuition, and how one intuition could ever be said to trump another. Because right? we got down to bedrock with you, Tamler, and you seem to say, or in fact did say, you know, fuck it. I'm, you know, if, if you're going to push hard on the the evil neuroscientist uh, intuition, I'm actually going to uh, prefer my intuition that I deserve a beatdown in the drunk driving case so much so that I will just I will re repudiate the the drunk driver intuition and say that you know everyone is guilty no matter what uh, the causes. Uh, that's how strongly I feel about my guilt in the well, no, drunk, no, no. drunk so, driving so case. I, I want to clarify that fuck it comment because this is <laughs> the thing that I've been getting shit about on Twitter. And, and again, it's, it's I, good I, that you were not on a plane to it's, South Africa. You, you would have <laughs> been yeah. in dire straits. German smelled great. <laughs> but but that I said fuck it in a very specific context, which was even in the Cosmic Ray case – Part of me is pulled towards the intuition that, well, then it's not my fault and I shouldn't get my beat down. And part of me said, fuck it, and say I deserve my beat down anyway. So it was actually a way of showing how even in a more extreme case like that, I, I, I'm conflicted. My emotions are pulling me both ways. And it was not, you know, an attempt to elude the logic of a certain argument. It was just honestly expressing my conflicting attitudes about even a case that's not naturalistic. It's uh, it's just, a, you know, it's like it's a, it's a thought experiment. So that 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 was the the fuck it. I, I don't know why people misunderstood it at that you do point, because i explained it in fault. detail to you I, I explained in detail to you why why they because i'm jewish <laughs> well, well let me tell you why i Scapegoating? I, I think it's easy to misunderstand i mean I, I don't actually think i i didn't object to it for a reason that i think is is born of a misunderstanding i just think the implicit in what you were doing there you were making the claim that once we get down to rival intuitions there are no other moves left open to us. You know, you've got intuition A, I've got intuition B. We just have to, to agree to disagree. And what's more, there are all these cultures uh, outside of our own which have intuition C, D, and E. And how could we ever hope to reconcile these, these, uh, these, these brute facts of, of cognition and emotion uh, that are all making... Uh, antithetical or incompatible claims. And I think that that picture of the stalemate is, in fact, inaccurate. It, it may be true for certain cases, uh, but it, I don't think it's Which true here. Which is all here. I'm claiming, that it's true for certain cases. Yeah, but you're, you're, you're saying it's true in this case, and it's true, and you know it to be true in this case because you've been on both sides of But only after you've done a this. ton of work, right? You know, this did get painted as a battle between reason and emotion, which I don't think it is. I think it's a battle between reason and um, and emotion A and reason and emotion B. And one fully agree, isn't yeah. any more emotional. <clears throat> one side isn't any more emotional than the other. I, I think reason has a huge role to play in terms of trying to make sure that your intuitions and emotions are consistent with the facts, trying to make sure that you understand the empirical facts surrounding agency. We had this conversation, right? If there are any even potentially relevant facts about how an action occurred, then both sides need to know it. Even if one side will ultimately 
deem it irrelevant and the other <clears> side <throat> will, de- will, will deem it relevant, you both at least need to know it. So there's a lot of work for reason, but I do think you can end up in this stalemate where you're just, you're just responding differently to, uh, to, to the same thing. All right, but I just don't so think me- we're, we're there yet. And I think you're, you're actually – I mean so there are two levels to – this or where I think hope for a convergence lies. One is an acknowledgement that we can actually discover that certain intuitions or classes of intuitions trump others so that we, we can get to a place where we, we thought we were at bedrock with our intuition, but we can we can triangulate on it and get around it and realize, oh, no, that's not really a defensible intuition and, it, and it's proven false by these other ones that I, I really can't see any way of doubting. Um, so that's that's one claim. Uh, the other is that I, mean, I, think I would you, agree with that, right? So I, but, but I, I think I'm, I'm hopeful it can be done in this case. Uh, uh, the, the other claim is that I think you are, you are a closet consequentialist, as I think every ethicist is, and when you are claiming not to be reasoning, reasoning as a consequentialist, you are actually smuggling consequences into your calculus covertly. And, and not noticing it. And, and so in, in everything you say, I would just like to hear you talk about the drunk driving case and the rightness of your getting punished uh, and and talk about that in a way which you, you really think does not is not parasitic on some notion of consequence for yourself, for the father, for society, for the, the, your children's view of the man you are or would be if you let yourself off the hook for this, the, everything. And, and, and that, uh, I think, I, would be instructive. Before we get to that, can I jump in about what I, what I saw as actually a, a, a critical feature of this argument that, didn't, that hasn't been picked up on? A lot of, I think, the listeners who, who actually tweeted and emailed were frustrated because they, they couldn't see, I think they didn't see the true nature of the disagreement here. So here's one thing that Tamler and I weren't doing, which was, misunderstanding your argument about say the, about the evil neuroscientist. So that was actually like a lot of people were like, I can't believe that, that uh, Tamler specifically, maybe I was lumped into this, uh, didn't get that if there is an evil neuroscientist, there's no control, like no ultimate control over your actions. We made a real effort to say, well, we all get that. So, so we all have this. We got this, Glenn Greenwald about that. You got you got greenwalled. You got greenwalled. And and I think that what and even sort of we just got a recent tweet saying, oh, "Sam, can you explain compatibilism to Tam to Tamler, Dave?" And and I think that this is exactly the wrong. Right. This is that, not that would be where demeaning. the disagreement was. Yeah. Right. Well, and I think you're being an incompatibilist. You know, you're saying, actually, we have no control. Therefore, we don't have any moral desert. To some degree, I, I think I, I show up as a compatibilist in the sense that in the kinds of things I want to see happening in our justice system and the kinds of things I would be disposed to do in a self-defense situation, et cetera. So, it, it, you know, I, I can look like someone who is right. holding people can uh, still... to account but but and I right and I think you do this in the more in in your book on 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 free will. I mean, at the end of the day, you say like we there are still on consequentialist grounds reasons to punish and and even act as if we are holding people justifiable way deserving of their actions. But at the end of the day, you don't believe that they just truly deserve uh, moral blame right. or to be held morally responsible. So that way, you're the incompatibilist. And what we but were I think defending that is, was, like, was a compa- in the interesting sense of compatibilist. That's what a compatibilist has to believe that. 
setting consequences aside. I know the classical compatibilists right. weren't like this, but in the interesting sense where there can be substantive disagreement, that's what you have to hold if you're going to be truly called a compatibilist. Right, and that's why I think that we were, Tamler, you and I were arguing for a compatibilist sort of position. Yeah. Um, and I think that where Tamler got sort of the heat was was hanging his uh, compatibilist intuitions or the, the idea that even if we're not free in any ultimate sense, we can be blamed. He pushed a lot on this, the intuition about the drunk driving case and, and the outrage, even the self-outrage that he would feel. But uh, what I was trying to defend was a, a sort of a different view of this. This There are genuine reasons uh, in regarding the agency of an individual that distinguish between people who are responsible and those who are not, even when we agree that in, in some ultimate sense um, we have no control over any of our actions, there is a local sense in which people have more or less control. And that I think this is it's perfectly reasonable to say that a person who intended and caused an outcome is actually deserves a different sort of attitude toward their actions um, than than somebody who did it on accident. And I think, Sam, you agreed about this. But what yes, this I, got turned yeah. into was somehow me making a claim that therefore punishing with hatred or severely punishing was was justified. And so a lot of the, the sentiment that we got, I think, from the audience was that that yours is a compassionate position, whereas ours is a harsh one, that that we are somehow in favor of. And, and I think well, it, it's when that co- it was when Tamler started shouting "Vengeance is mine" over and over again that I think we got that <laughs> yes, this is, this is why this is why I w- wanted to set myself aside as the truly reasonable member of this panel, um, uh, and arguing that what I was what I was you saying was such uh, you you're, I, you just cop out. No, it's not Be a cop a out. It's actually a more reasonable Defend position your than yours. I never had your crazy view of like therefore I should get my ass beat when I drunk drive. Which, which you don't I, think you should get your ass beat when you drunk drive and kill and, 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 and really hurt a little kid? No, but I do think that I deserve blame. He, he can't even bring himself to let better, you hypothetically kill a little kid. He, he keeps correcting right. it to a broken leg. Listen, he killed right. that, I, I that, know. that I, imaginary I really can't. kid. Like, I, I, can't, I can't face even the <laughs> hypothetical of that. Yeah. Um, Listen, but uh, but so, I, that does re- – you sort of tip your hand there. I, I mean, I, I think I – I think you've said this in another podcast. I, I, I think you just referred to it in in the one we did. Wasn't your change of heart born of uh, becoming a father? I mean, wasn't it an, yeah. first, right. first well, having a daughter it, that made you rethink all these things? Yes, I, that's right. definitely true. Like, that was like the seed of the change. And then, um, but, you know, again, I don't think that's a strike against the position. I think it's a strike. F- I think it just shows that, you know, our philosophical positions are informed by our experiences, our life experiences, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, but um, that's why I say you don't need that. So, I, I mean, you ought not need to become a father in order to, to actually, I think, find no. this, this <laughs> philosophy. I think that's what... <laughs> Yeah, I'm not saying it, you need it. That happened to be in. I mean, look, we come by our views in lots of different ways, and I was just sociologically no, I, describing my. But it's not like there weren't arguments out there. I mean, there's no, the but this is P.F. Strawson paper that just essentially I I I, I but, grow to. I'm, f- to find more 
compelling every single day. You right. Know? I'm saying all I'm saying is that descriptively your your purported mystery at why people misunderstood your position is probably a, is is probably a result of maybe either on purpose or or not on purpose, not admitting that your examples are laden with sort of personal, you know, this sort of I had a daughter. I feel but, this but particular I, but emotion. But again, I don't. The, that, that 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 might be true. I think it's that the position, the whole position of the reactive attitudes being what ultimately constitutes deserved blame, requires that you know you use examples that appeal to emotions, right? Because that's how real life is. Yeah. And well, again, but, so but I you know, I mean, that's the that's the great insight of that paper, and I think people misunderstand it. Because it's a very complex position, and it right, it took and this me- is why I think it's a, not a good way to express that position by giving the examples that you gave and wondering why people well, don't. I, like, I do the best I can. <laughs> well, but I think I think that 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 this is what what you're pointing out is that you know one of the things that was attributed to Sam's position is that it's a compassionate one, and that ours is not. And I think that you know people are pulled by this sense of well, you know. Uh, capital punishment is wrong, and Sam's view seems to say to say that that you know we shouldn't have such excessive punishments. And Dave and Tamler seem to be arguing for getting your ass beat um, in this case, and that's not See, what the argument I, I, is. Okay, that's not, but I agree. I'm on, but, but I'm okay. on your side, so like I'm just trying to state it in a way that won't actually get a reaction where people right. will say, "Well, this what." Tamler's view entails is harshness and punishment. But we, I mean, we've talked about this, but we disagree on our diagnosis here because I don't think, like, I'm happy to hear that Sam's view is more compassionate than mine. That is the compassionateness of it, sort of, <laughs> is one of the things that pulls me in Sam's direction. Of the skeptical position is, I think, a point in its favor. What I diagnosed to be the problem is is that people thought that Sam was on the side of reason and I was on the side of emotion. But yeah, of course okay. you don't have to support no, the death but, penalty. No, yeah. but 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 it's not it's not that both of you are ultimately arguing some emotional thing. It's both of you might have the right mix of reason and emotion. But yeah, I wanted there, to say there's this no, before the, the, turning the, it over the dividing to Sam. Line, if I could just jump yeah. in here, the, the the dividing line between reason and emotion is is spurious i mean the, the, you know, you're right my the feeling i get when you start saying something that i disagree with and i get this feeling of doubt and i you know my my error correcting module uh comes online and i just feel uh the impulse to interrupt you to correct the thing that you just said that i'm convinced is wrong that's an emotion right i mean for a reason to be effective it's 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 on the back of emotion in, in every moment and you know, we understand this to some degree neurologically, but it's just that, you know, the doubt, I consider doubt an emotion. Uh, and um, it's a, so yeah, well, we're, we're both using reason and emotion. And the, given that reason depends on intuitions, which cannot themselves be unpacked any further, like two plus two equals four, and it makes four, whether you're talking about two apples or two oranges or or any other object, it's it's universalizable. That's an intuition. Now, explain that, justify that. You know, good luck with with that. You're you're not going to be able to do it. So we we get down to these 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 atoms of cognition uh, that we can't really divide, uh, and that's what we're working with. So I, yeah, we're we're definitely playing the the same game. It's just the the your appeal to emotion and especially to the 
the, the case of your daughter. For me, it's a it's a bit of a a red flag. But I, I but again, it's, it doesn't actually discredit your argument. Well, why if in is fact it a your red argument flag is true. to ground something well, in like an experience that most human beings have? Why is that a well, red flag? Most don't have it. <laughs> Well, one because what? it was actually causing you to to even forsake the the sense that ethics had to be universalizable that that you could uh, you know that, that basically well let's let's forget about the categorical imperative or anything like it and just talk about the rightness of of your particular case um, uh, in a way that was not generalizable to to other cases. That's that's the sense of. Uh, that I got that some of that was creeping in, but yeah, I think we're well, just we're I, kind again, of spinning I, our wheels here. I think we should I think yeah. we should actually focus on the case of the drunk driving case, which is very useful and brings out virtually virtually every element here that's worth talking about. And I just I would I would want to hear Tamler. I mean, for for instance, here's a question for you: if if what if it was just true to say, and this is now pushing on your claim that you're not a consequentialist, um, what if it's just a fact that you would be better off? And the father would be better off, and society itself would be better off if the father just forgave you. Uh, you know, if, if after a day or a week or a month, and you forgave yeah, I mean, yourself. Yeah, I think that matters. Yeah. You know, so, so let's just say, okay, let's say it's just that's just a fact. He would be happier. He wouldn't live with all this psychic pain. Um, you would be you would be happier, uh, and 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 the example set for the rest of society would be would be in some sense beneficial to the group. Uh, now, I'm not saying that's definitely the case, but let's just say that just say that is the case empirically. Why would it still be wrong? Why, why do you still deserve that beatdown? So I actually think that if the father forgave me and didn't want to give me that beatdown anymore, then I no longer deserve the beatdown. But so not you're a consequentialist. For soci- not because it's better for society or better for him. It's because I, so th- what I reject is the the idea that you have that you have to generalize these kinds of cases. I think we, you know when something like that happens between two people, then it really matters what the person who suffered the wrongdoing. Um, it matters how they feel about it. The example I always use is if one person cheats on their wife and another person cheats on their wife in the exact same circumstance, the person can deserve to be forgiven or the person can deserve to have to come home and find all his clothes and, on the lawn and, and, and the locks changed. There's no single correct response to how to deal with that it, it it's up to the person there's a range of acceptable responses like there's a, I, I understand there's a, that but you know, you're, you're still a consequentialist i mean that, so you you're well, just enunciating no, a consequentialist it's not a consequ- position it's not consequentialist because it doesn't involve like the i mean i, it, I think it, that the better example actually just if like just maybe to tap tamla's intuition here is because tamla's answering sort of a different question than sam you were asking but that is, what if it was actually of better consequence to society that, that the father immediately killed you or that there is some sort of um, actual impartial third party that delivers the justice? I think Tamler is saying that he is he's claimed that he is insensitive to consequences. The, the example that you gave about forgiveness just happened to, to resonate with Tamler's other views on interpersonal the interpersonal nature of moral responsibility. Well, I may right? be a little confused. Let me just throw one more thing in here because I, what I was hearing you say, Tamler, is that the effect on the mind of the father, the wronged party here, is 
kind of your primary locus of concern. And if he's ha better off or that is happier forgiving you and capable of it, well, then it's not, it's that's not a question fine. of his that's, happiness. That's... It's a question of, you know, what he wants and what he thinks is appropriate. Like I give him a lot of leeway, not unlimited leeway, but a lot of leeway to determine what the correct response is. And if his, if he determines that it's to give me a beatdown, couldn't he be wrong in his determination? Let's say he's given a choice. I, 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 I say, you know, we have two sets of goggles here, moral goggles. You put on set A, and it's going to seem to you that the beatdown is absolutely what you want to do, and you're going to find it irresistible to do it. Uh, you put on set B, you're going to see the wisdom of forgiveness, and it's going to seem uh, you, you're just it's going to be as much a relief for you as just withdrawing your hand from a fire uh, to forgive this person who, based on cosmic ray bombardment or some other inscrutable cause, ran over your daughter. Um, uh, and you can choose which goggles to put on now, uh, and one choice is actually better in the sense that you're going to have a much better life as a result, uh, and and one choice, therefore, is worse. So which is the right choice? You're saying that there's no place to stand to know which is the right choice? It could be that he feels better about the beatdown. It could be that he feels worse. If he gave me the beatdown and, you know, it, it, it ended up destroying his life, like he couldn't live with himself for it then you know like it's not like i think consequences don't matter at all i just don't think they they entirely determine the case this is this is the crucial like, piece just tell me anything just name anything that is not a matter of consequences just put something else on the scale and give me its name I, i'm not sure i understand the question all i'm hearing you talk about is consequences you might not know they're, they're sound why they're no, sounding no, like consequences to me but it's all he, i'm just hearing he consequences to, as far as let's that. say he wants to give me a beat down and it makes his life slightly tiny bit worse. You know, like right. kind of he sort of wishes that he had and talking about it two years later. But then he also he's fine. I mean, he's fine with it, but he 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 has mild regret about it a year later. And he, I still think I deserve the beatdown. Like so that's an example right there. Like I deserve well, it in virtue of at that time him wanting to do it. Well, but that's just and, a short term you know, like, pleasure it, it of beating you down that you're. In, it's what? just it, that's that's also consequences. It's just it's just a short term pleasure versus long term uh, gain, and it's we make that calculation all the time for ourselves. And and you're just putting it in a situation where it doesn't really matter all that much no, no, one no. way or the other so, because so, it's mild we're not regret about it and from it's his not a perspective. Big deal. We're talking about it from my perspective about what I deserve, and that's so. Even if it was the wrong choice for him, that doesn't affect whether I deserved what I got or not. So that's my example okay, but, in of something that doesn't. It, it, it might involve the consequences for him. For his decision is a consequentialist decision to some extent, but it's not a consequentialist judgment about m the appropriateness of my beatdown. But but what you deserve, your your calculation uh, about what you deserve is based on the spectrum of effects on him in his mind and his life because if i tell you oh his life is ruined if he beats you down well then you say oh then he shouldn't beat me down that would be wrong um but well, if i tell you so, his life is slightly improved by beating you down you say oh yeah then then i deserve it well there's there's a way um in which that the the sort of your attempt right now sam to reduce everything to consequences is most certainly has to be correct um and i think that this so 
That is, it would be really weird if we endorsed a moral rule that sort of in general made society worse overall or or whatever. But that's I don't think that's that's okay. But no, but wait wait a minute, no, no, don't, David, don't slide over that. You just have have ended hundreds of years of debate in in meta ethics with that one sentence. And I I agree with you. Uh, I did. Well, so here's so here's I don't mean to do that. I. I mean, I mean to introduce, in fact, this very problem, which is that um, the the claim that a non consequentialist isn't sensitive to consequences is is not necessarily that's a straw man not, attack. Right? It's a straw no, man. No, no. My claim is, is my claim is that there's nothing they can't name a single other thing that doesn't at some point reduce to consequences, whether they right. acknowledge it or not. And I don't think not. that's what makes us a consequentialist. And so I actually don't have Tamler's specific view about what constitutes moral responsibility. Like I actually think that there are universalized sort of universal rules about agency and about the severity of something that makes it so that there are rules that should be upheld independent of consequences, like don't murder innocent people. And so if you say, well, what about a world in which... But David, but you are smuggling into that. I agree with you. Don't murder innocent people. But you're smuggling into that the expectation that the consequences, all things considered, are better uh, yeah, I know. If we, so, if we follow that is, rule. I, and I'm not doing this. I'm not smuggling in the sense that, like, when I finish what I'm about to say, you'll actually see that I'm explicitly admitting that there is a way in which uh, the, the non-consequentialist, say the deontologist, can be distinguished from the real consequentialist in that I actually think that uh, there are many cases in which a general moral rule should be upheld even when there are worse local consequences. So I think that the burden has to shift on you for actually allowing an, any of an, any number of actions that would maximize consequences that might violate a rule. And this is just the pitfall of consequentialism. We, we should, for our audience, just be clear about what consequentialism is and isn't, but for, but for ourselves and our audience. But consequentialism yeah. in, in, in the ethical debate, it's a, it's a normative theory or moral theory that holds that an action is only right or wrong in virtue of bringing about better consequences. That that's, makes the action right. Worse, that makes the action wrong. The deontologist, which is the position that Dave is trying to distinguish from that, believes that there are certain actions that might be wrong – even if the consequences are slightly um, better for society if, if you do it. So uh, an example might be torture. It could be that torturing somebody, you know, if you really do the balance of the consequences, it, it actually slightly raises or diminishes the risk that a, a terrorist attack will happen, but you might still think it's, it's wrong even if that, that you know the it, it increases the risk for, um, for 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 a terrorist action. I, I mean, I do think those two positions are are distinct. Um, you can hold that certain things are right or wrong, regardless of the consequences, and still also hold that if the consequences are overwhelmingly better or worse, then that trumps the whatever principle it is that you're talking about. Well, well, no, torture. I, if 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 torture that, that final will save move, I think is the entire you know like an entire country from being destroyed, then you might say even though it's wrong, you should do it. Um, but that doesn't mean that you are a consequentialist because you admit that consequences sometimes trump everything. Well, no, I well, two, two, so two things are that that's a good 
way to differentiate them. But I think when the deontologist caves in in the face of massive consequences, he has revealed something about his position, i.e. that it was consequences all along, and he's assuming that his rule is just uh, so such a good guide to reaping good consequence, consequences in the future that it should be followed even in cases where locally it may seem to be disadvantageous, and and which is I I actually think is a totally why rational. Why does that follow, Sam? And, why why just because they're pluralists about the things that morally matter, it doesn't mean that oh that reveals that they are that they think consequences are the only thing that matters just because they admit like any sane right. person that consequences matter well, well, to some. Well, degree. no, because but, but but then when you just look at the rationale for following any rule. Uh, the rationale is always in terms of consequences. This rule is is going to be – if I told you that the rule you're going to follow is always producing a net negative consequence for the most important players or the most important people affected by it um, or everyone, you, it, the, the rationale for following the rule disappears. If you're Sense a consequentialist, it does. Well, well, no, but then fine. Then, then, then you just appear to be a, a, a sociopath or someone who's completely confused about what morality is. If you have some rule, which is just uh, a, no matter what, what, no matter how you look at it, uh, is degrading every everything you you sh- should otherwise care about, um, and the and you can't give any justification for it in terms of its good effects on you, either actual or potential or others. Uh, now or in the future, then uh, th- it would not it would not recommend itself to any sane person, or so so I would argue, as an ethical principle. Well, I mean, I think that this is why. I mean, look, you can formulate the categorical imperative as, in some way, just a, a recipe, right? So Kant's Kant's belief that you ought to act in the way that everybody ought to act in your position, or some some version of that. Um, you could just say, well, that, of course, in a world in which that yielded horrific consequences, it wouldn't make sense right. as a moral rule. But that doesn't mean, I think, that in the local sense, we can't, that we, that deontology collapses into consequentialism. It actually well, that, means that as a consequentialist, you're committed to a very different kind of violation, which sometimes makes you seem like the sociopath, which is that for any given action, um, where I have to decide, say, whether or not to murder an innocent man, so for instance, you know, the classic case of a uh, of the magistrate and the mob, um, you know that you can put to death an innocent man, and that will actually save save a whole bunch of lives, a mob from actually killing a whole bunch of people in anger, um, that you are, as a consequentialist, committed to, in every case, denying the power of the rule and acting in a way that would maximize No, 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 but again, consequential, consequentialism, and this is why I don't call myself a consequentialist in general and didn't in the moral landscape, because there's so many... Uh, what I consider to be uh, false assumptions about consequentialism based on the academic debates that have been had about it, that it, it's just, it's, there are these, these, um, these canards against it, which you then have to keep uh, fighting against. But the, in that case, I think you can make a consequentialist case for why rules are so important to maintain as, and, and why when you start to, pick and choose on a local case whether to follow a a rule or not, you are going to destabilize the power of the rule and create far larger harms in the future. So, for instance, the magistrate magistrate just decides to to scapegoat this one innocent person 
this one time so that you know the mob will be appeased what is the what is the net effect of that going to be i you know i would expect it to be terrible on the societal well, level well this is why this is why these examples do depend on very very particular cases in which nobody will find out but but again i got to say just to call them canards and actually here's where you're you seem to be dismissing hundreds of years of debate about these two positions uh, i was where, praising you, know, you i was praising you for dismissing those, those, <laughs> those hundreds of years i just wanted you to acknowledge it yeah, well, so, but, but you, you know, so there are reasons why some version of rule consequentialism, as you were describing it, right? So you find a rule that maximizes benefits. Um, you know, there's, there's call it a canard or call it an insightful point that this collapses down to act consequentialism, where on a case by case basis, you would not be justified in upholding a rule that you knew, like for certain, would actually not be uh, good. In terms well, of that, and and we tend, we certainly tend to break net those loss rules to the consequences. You would be bound to break the rule. Yeah, and we, we know, tend. Not, and that, I, that, I would argue that, that, that we a, you, it's totally degrading humanity. It's just slight net loss. Like a few people are a little more upset than they would have been. A few people are not as happy as they would have been. To if you know that you're going to break the rule. Right. Now, but the, the problem, of, look, the problem, so, of course, is is dealing with all of this in practice. Where and this is why rules are so tempting to follow and and so good to follow most of the time or much of the time is that that we can never be entirely sure about how all the consequences are are going what consequences are going to accrue and we we can never be entirely sure about our state of information uh and so um we we all reach for these rules that seem you know for instance fairness fairness seems like a, a an absolutely indispensable heuristic to have running in your society so that, you know, you go through the doors of a hospital, you know, with your sick kid and the treatment you're going to, you're going to get in the ER is going to, you're going to be triaged according to some principle of fairness. Uh, and the fact that you happen to be rich or famous or good looking is not going to be the reason why you get better treatment than someone else. That, that would seem to be, um, a rule that we, you know, we take a Rawlsian, you know, a veil of ignorance. We're all going to sign up for that. That that makes sense, but it, there's, but see, there's certainly cases where, I think that where, you're where you want to be unfair. Ontologist, it, it's kind of a coincidence that a lot of these consequentialists embrace these rules that happen to coincide with our intuitions about what the right thing to do, based on virtually no evidence that these rules are actually better or worse for society. It's not like there's been a ton of empirical research done on consequentialist effects of each particular deontological rule, and yet somehow it always seems like, oh, well, taking care of your kids, you know, and, and it is a good rule to follow because if everybody did that, then, you know, and then everybody's going to be better off. I, I think utilitarians are not, they don't sufficiently question whether that's true, that that rule is all things considered, leading to the greater happiness. And yet they're very willing to just sort of embrace it anyway and kind of assume that the consequences are better if we follow those rules. Well, I, I, I appreciate would say that's because they're closet, you know, they're closet I, I, virtue I, I, ethicist slash deontology. I appreciate your attempt to turn the tables on me there, but there, there's an asymmetry here, which is the moment you can show me that the rule is actually harmful in any important sense, well, then I will disavow the rule. 
I mean, the rule is right. just. So, it, but, why is the burden on the uh, on the other person? Why isn't it on you to show that it's a good rule to follow? No, you're, the burden is on you to show me it, to spell out anything that doesn't actually cash out in terms of consequences for someone, somewhere, sometime uh, that you care about. Uh, and I, I mean, you still haven't done that. Like the drunk driving case, I, I just no, hear you I, talking I about the, the happiness of the father or the the, the effect no, on his future well-being. I wasn't talking well-being. about the happiness of the father. I was. Well, talking you don't. About you don't want to use the word happiness, do. but you're you're talking about yeah. But what what's the significance of him satisfying his wants? Well, can can I actually then say? Um, I mean, I think this is where these thought cases actually do some work. I mean, this is artificial as they might be, and as hard as they might be to sort of apply in the real world. It really is. You are committed as a consequentialist to saying, I will violate any rule so long as it actually ends up maximizing consequences, whether that rule be fairness or my you know, belief that one shouldn't torture. If, if you can accept the possibility that there is a case in which nobody would find out about torture at all, but you could save three lives by torturing one individual, the rule goes out the door. Right. And so as long so long as you embrace that, that's what is entailed by your consequentialist view. I'm I'm fine with it. I mean, I think that. Well, no, the, no. But, but OK. The, the but there's view. there's one set of consequences you're not conceding. And this, this is another problem with the, the, the traditional framework for this debate is when people talk about consequences, they seem to only focus on the consequences sort of out there in the real world in terms of uh, easily measured things like body count or dollars. And they're not talking about the consequences in terms of of uh, the effects on all the minds involved. And so so here you you have to add on the balance my experience as the torturer of someone I know to be innocent. What's the effect on me over time? Right. What kind of person do I become? How do I it, how how is my life impacted? How much how, I mean, fa- how, uh, what's, the, what's the what's the cost of my guilt? Fair enough. So, so let's just say that my my equation just needs more variables. It still yeah, it still but, follows uh, that so long. I think as if you bring you, if if you make it very simple, if we have an alien race that comes to to Earth and they say, "Listen, we're gonna we're gonna torture all of you for eternity in 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 ways that you know we have devised based on our our uh, perfect technology, unless you sacrifice this this one innocent little baby." Uh, yes, the right thing to do absolutely is to sacrifice that one innocent well, but, little but, baby. But see, I think that here's where it doesn't, you don't, it's not required by consequentialism to stack the deck in that. I mean, it literally means to be a consequentialist literally means that you want to maximize. And that means that it ought to be the case that saving three people by torturing one, taking into account what it does to your well-being, which, by the way, is a, a weird way of sort of reifying the rules. That is, if you really are a consequentialist, it ought not bother you that much. <laughs> that, that, well, no, no, but there's just but the, does, there's the effect of the, does, the person's innocence. But it still weighs in favor of doing it. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. This is why – this is um, what makes me so suspicious is there's always some reason why the thing that is your intuition ends out working for the best consequences. Like, you know, it's like the John Haidt brother-sister well, no. case where people will come up with all these different reasons why it's actually going to be bad for – for them to to have sex it's not like they've looked into the research on consensual incest between brother and sister but there's this sort of tendency to just assume that the consequences are going to work out the way you want it to work out based on 
your intuition. Well, no, it's it, I, I have a I mean, as you know from the moral landscape, I have a very broad view of of consequences and uh, competing possibilities. So that there could be many peaks on, on this landscape, some of which are, we we can't even imagine, and that they're irreconcilable with other peaks, and that we just Again, it's a navigation problem. You can, you can. There are possible experiences of well-being in this universe, uh, given all the possibilities of of mental life, and you can navigate toward the peaks, or you can navigate toward the valleys of of pure misery. And there are, must be right and wrong answers about how to navigate. And I think ethics and morality relate to the all of the concerns about navigation that that arise once you have multiple agents. Uh, or seeming agents working in this space. If you're if you're in a moral solitude, if you're alone on a desert island, there isn't a there isn't an ethical problem arising, uh, right. but there's a st- still a navigation well, there problem. Is. Uh, but I still think you, the, the thing you haven't answered. I really think it's you can't name something worth caring about, or some justification for your rule, or some deontological principle. I mean, I mean, there's a way in which that's true by definition, right? I mean, like, there's some, there's always going to, if you're asking why I deserve the beatdown. Tamler, if you see consequences the way I see consequences, you see that they reach into everything and they, we're talking about the actual or possible changes in experience across the board for for everything that could possibly be affected by a certain action. And again, we can't always tally that, but that is the measure of whether something is moving in the right direction or the wrong direction. And when you say you deserve your beatdown, I really think you're, you are implicitly thinking about and feeling the consequences of being the sort of person who could let yourself off the hook for that kind of uh, negligence and you know viewing yourself through your daughter's eyes and imagining what if it happened to your daughter and how you would feel and you're just it's just a tissue of of mental states and consequences for as far as the eye can see that you're using to calculate the rightness of this principle which you're saying stands free of consequences look there's a way in which it, you know our d- disagreement can be terminological like all I'm committed to is that the beat down under certain conditions is appropriate is is the appropriate response now um you know are there reasons why I think that of course and one of them is that I think that that I would be a non-virtuous person if I I didn't if I sort of complained about my beatdown because I wasn't the ultimate cause of myself, that there are weird parallels between an evil neuroscientist case and my case. And, you know, yeah, so part of that is that that I don't think that's an appropriate way of regarding the case, and I would find myself to be morally deficient if I thought it was. So in that sense, sure. But but that's too loose a definition of con- – like there's a sense of consequentialism where everybody's a consequentialist, where Kant is a consequentialist. So, I mean like that's fine. Then I'm a consequentialist in that sense. I, I don't think that's the sort of – you know, there's still – we still get then get back to the question of whether – I deserve my beat down or not. Can we you, take a, a, a short break? But yeah, I want to ask you about that, the, the multiple peaks on the landscape, because I think that commits you actually to ultimately agreeing with me about the moral responsibility 
I, I, I'm, pre some more water I'm prepared to, to, go to the I'm prepared to agree that on one of those peaks, you probably do deserve a beatdown. <laughs> and I, I just and, wanted and to say that there, of Twitter followers. There also. is a, <laughs> there is still a true moral problem about being alone in, a, in on a desert island, and and that is the question of whether or not um, it's permissible to masturbate. Um, <laughs> <Right>. So, <laughs> yes, courtesy so of religion, become, like what you're allowed to put in your spank bank. <laughs> It is. Right. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a virtue theorist about spank bank. Heavens to Murgatroyd. Oh, Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We're back here with Sam Harris. I, I wanted to insert at some point, because I actually started to make this point, and I, I don't think I ever got to finish it, which is that I disagree with both of you in earlier in the conversation where we said the Tamler's position seems vengeful and Sam seems compassionate, that your particular view, Sam, is actually independent of compassion or vengeance. It is committed, in fact, to only those responses which will maximize consequences. And what that might mean is in many cases, you might decide that a particularly uh, excessive punishment um, in some sort of deontological sense, disproportionate punishment, is what is required to maximize benefits. And so, and, and this, is, this is why I resisted this or why it bothers me that a lot of the argument is that your view is more compassionate. Your, what your view entails is anything, any sort of punishment that is effective. And it could be that, that we violate our sense of justice or empathy or proportionality in order to maximize the consequences. It could be that you as a human being are particularly compassionate, but your view doesn't entail any sort of compassion. It, it, well, no, except for the fact that I... I believe empirically that compassion is an incredibly beneficial consequence that we want to ma maximize. I think, I think sure, compassion but, but if, is one of the, the best rules the, we have. But if the science turned out to work in the favor of every once in a while, a particularly uncompassionate, <laughs> a particularly vengeful sort of punishment, it maximizes the consequences, you are, you are committed to that as a consequentialist. Tamler saying you, you know, it's, it could be that the science of compassion and the ethic, normative ethical view of consequentialism happen to align. But if you are going to embrace the normative ethical view of consequentialism, you have to be open to the fact that the possibility that there would be oh, yeah. empirical, yeah. right? Pro provided so, we take on board the consequences, all the consequences. Yeah, I mean, I, absolutely. I, absolutely. I, you know, I, I, I suffer the 
the utility monster problem. You know, if, if right. an alien being came to Earth and it drew so much pleasure from consuming us that it's that it completely <laughs> swamped all the pleasure we, we would, and not just pleasure, but well-being in every relevant sense that we would accrue by having a by persisting as a human civilization. You know, from view viewed from above, I would say, yeah, the right thing to have happen is to, for us to be sacrificed to this utility monster. Uh, now, that, that's not saying that's not to say that I think I would you know run willingly into his jaws, but but it's it, in in the global sense, yeah, I I I have to succumb to that argument. And I and I want to say that I wasn't saying necessarily that the view is more compassionate. I was just saying that that would be a legitimate way to argue for the position. Just, I wasn't uh, saying thing, that not it was to like in you... principle committed to compassion. Although there's a compassionate element to it in the sense that you don't blame you don't punish people for things that are beyond their control ultimately. There there's something sort of in, inherently compassionate about that and that's a No, that's no, a in fact in you put, favor. but that's not true. You punish people all the time even when you know they can't control it. That well, is well, no, this is the weird thing this is a separate this is a separate topic. I mean, the, I think we should divorces from the utilitarianism. Right. I think we should distinguish these two things. I take your point, David, but the 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 actual consequence for me of the the illusoriness of free will, as I do, is uh, to be much more forgiving and compassionate, and uh, much less hateful of of bad actors. I mean, whenever I find myself hating someone. Uh, the consideration that they could not be other than they are, and that they're essentially like a a, a malfunctioning robot or a grizzly bear, uh, puts me in a much more balanced frame of mind with respect to them. And then I can just think rationally about what is consequentially good for me and and for the world. But when I'm when I'm lost in in fixating on their agency as the real authors of their mental states and actions, I'm. I I can just get caught up in in just you know pure hatred of that person and that's and that just seems see, but see I'm like so there's a there's a famous example from Ellie Wiesel uh, that Martha Nussbaum talks about where the Americans came into a concentration camp the people who are still alive in the concentration camp but had been sort of tortured and uh, starved and they had just lost a real sense that they were valuable people um, based on mm. how they'd been treated for all these years. Ellie Wiesel, who was one of these uh, people in the camp, says that, that the Americans come in and just the look of sheer just hatred and outrage on their face, their their anger at the Germans was le- was their first step towards restoring their uh, the prisoners restoring their humanity it was it was the 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 pure not calculated hatred by the on the faces of the of the soldiers but just their pure outrage at what was going on and and that outrage was based on really not seeing them as grizzly bears but as seeing them as thinking rational people that while not ultimately responsible for their particular constitutions and characters still did these things that's what their hatred was based on they didn't you know they certainly had no way of knowing that this would be have this effect 
on the on on the prisoners. Well, well yeah, no, but it, it's not. I, I think I would have a a similar response even in my most clear headed view of the situation. But it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a response that uh, fully partook of the moral illusion of thinking that any of these people involved were the true self-sufficient upstream cause of their actions, or that I wouldn't have been a member of the SS if I had to trade brains with one of these SS members. I mean, so that if I, if I had the exact same... The hatred doesn't require that you don't think that you would have been like that in similar circumstances. It just requires that you're... When I'm talking about hatred, though, I'm not talking about the the in-the-moment out feeling of outrage or anger. I'm talking about given an immensity of time or sufficient time to think about it given a given a courtroom a trial you know where you you have to decide at the end what should should happen to this person um i feel that that hatred is um something to get over i mean it cl- it's, it's it's it is a moral illusion it clouds our judgment it's actually not recognizing how someone came to be the way they were and it's not necessary to punish bad people or lock them up or to, to defend yourself in the moment against an aggressor. I mean, it's just so much of what we care about, we, we, what we fear losing is actually not lost. And what we get is uh, no longer a rationale to, to seethe uh, in perpetuity against uh, someone based on a sense of, of moral difference between them and us that, that uh, actually can't be explained when you look at the facts. And let me chime in that I, I mean, I'm so I am very opposed to hate <laughs> and I just don't I don't think you need a denial of, of um, moral responsibility in order to get there. I think that, that plenty of people can get there on some principled ground about hate. But that's sort of beside the point. I think that that I wouldn't even want to call what those American soldiers were experiencing hate. Rather, I would just say that this is anger um, and anger at a cognitive evaluation about a certain set of, of facts about what it. The, the sort of action that it takes to systematically do what what the Nazis did. And, you know, it may be that, that this boils down to terminology, but I call that responsibility and I distinguish that from accidental harm in a way that actually influences the cognitive stance I take, my emotional response to the actions that the person has taken. And sure, it will have different consequences. I, I mean, on some grounds, this has to boil down to perhaps people who intend harms ought to be punished in a different way because that will prevent intentional harm from occurring in the future. And that's fine. Um, yeah, well, but... also, also there's another reason. It's just because it, the intentional harms says much more about them and what they're likely to do if given the chance in the future. So it's not a, just a matter of deterring other people. It's a matter of you actually know a lot about this person if he's intending to harm you. If, you, if he that, accidentally right. harmed you, you don't know anything. Right. And this is where it doesn't take any embracing of libertarian free will. I think that was a, sort of a, a, a misunderstanding of the position that at least I was defending. And I think Tamara was defending is that, well, uh, it just requires it, it requires some differentiation between accidental and intentional harms or right the mental state of the person who's doing the harm. And that doesn't mean that I'm embracing ultimate control. I'm just saying that we we can distinguish in our emotional responses and in our cognitive evaluation between people who act in a certain way and people who don't. But again, we, we then we come back to, to topics already raised where when you have something like a cure for intentional harms, right? You have someone who just yeah. is helplessly intending harms all day long, 
and we know a lot about him. We, we know he's a psychopath. We know what he's likely to do tomorrow based on all the intending and harming he did today. But now we've got a pill because we, we understand what what malicious intent is at the level of the brain. And now we can just give him the pill rather than punish him or, or yeah, give him the beatdown that he deserves. Yeah, a little beatdown, and then he can take the pill. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, uh, let's make the pill like I, a really I might big actually agree with that... you there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So here's where I think that we may, or at least that the disagreement might be more empirical than it is ultimately philosophical. So you, you're right that having my daughter was like, but but the thing that sort of pushed me over the edge was doing research on cross-cultural attitudes about moral responsibility and seeing that there are some cultures that are not just compatibilist, they're hyper-compatibilist. It's, it's all a matter of degree, but the, you know whether something is accidental or intentional doesn't matter as much to people in these cultures. And let me just choose a famous example, which is Oedipus, right? So Oedipus, he, he had no idea that the person that he was killing was his father, and he had no idea that the person he married and slept with was his mother. And yet he did those things. And then when he found out about it, he, his response was to blind himself, not to let himself off the hook for something that, you know, was, was uh, it, it, you don't need to not have libertarian free will to, to get that, that that was out of his control, that this was – uh, this was bad luck. So here's the here's the sort of key point that I I hope that it won't be misunderstood. Right. So you have this view, which I I you know I find counterintuitive. Certainly not anything that I was defending to some degree. And yet I I feel the pull of what he did. That sort of refusal to. This is the, the the fuck it part, right? The refusal to let himself off the hook as possibly virtuous. And if you have a society that's like that, if you have a society that isn't looking to forgive themselves and excuse themselves based on every little factor that was beyond their control, but was actually looking to take responsibility, to use your language, maybe that's a separate peak on a moral landscape, that, that, that we can't automatically assume that Oedipus and that way of understanding responsibility is obviously flawed or obviously irrational, because there's nothing irrational about it. It's not like Oedipus didn't know that he, that, that he wasn't at fault in a certain sense for what he did. He just thought this was the appropriate response. Now, we might think that's, that's the society is going to be better much worse off if everybody has that attitude, and maybe that's right, but maybe it's not. And I started to find that there might be multiple different ways of looking at moral responsibility that each have their own internal coherence and internal logic, and each lead have some sort of well-being or moral strengths, and each have some moral weaknesses. At the very least, a lot of empirical work would have to be done before you could confidently proclaim that yours was the best one. Yeah, well, I, I think what your question opens to is um, two concerns. One is the the significance we're going to give to diversity of moral opinion across cultures. And I think I think that's 
I think the diversity of opinion isn't, in the end, so interesting because we can find lots of crazy cultures that, that have crazy opinions that we just want, at the end of the day, claim to be wrong uh, uh, with respect to I, fact I, Obviously, and, I and agree values. with that, but that doesn't mean right. that because but, some but cases it, but, of diversity aren't interesting that yeah. all cases of diversity aren't interesting. No, exactly. Some some cases of diversity are really just, just kind of different ways to go toward a an incompa- incompatible peaks on, on the landscape I'm talking about, I think. And I, I, but I, what you're talking about is taking responsibility. I think could be a kind of moral attitude we could have, which is not really, it's not going after a, a kind of a deep appraisal of facts or what's going on in the world. But it's it's a, it's just an attitude one can take toward uh, each present moment's experience, which may be better or worse. So, for instance, you could say. Uh, it's almost like like the belief that everything happens for a reason, right? So you're like if you get up every morning and all the good things and bad things that happen to you, you view you view them as well. This all just happens for a reason. Uh, you can have that attitude. If you have that attitude, I think it has a real effect on your life. It has a real effect on how patient you are with with adversity, how okay, your your willingness to make positive use of of seemingly bad things. You're always seeing the silver lining in things. Um, and but it's not you can have that attitude without feeling that it's actually justified based on an honest examination of of the facts as we know them about the the universe. I mean, the, the, do, does everything really happen for a reason? Is this universe set up so as to curriculum to instruct you to, into how to be a better person? No, but you can have something like that attitude in how you you view your experiences in life uh, and. I, I, that's that's just a it's maybe a very beneficial attitude to have, uh, and um, I wouldn't dispute that. But I, I, I'm hearing something like that in the use you're making of the Oedipus case. Except that you know, there's certain versions of the everything happens for a reason that are based on just an empirical error. But, right. But but I don't think Oedipus's attitudes are based on any empirical error. He does. He knows all the facts. There's no facts in dispute. My, I'm curious about your position because you have this idea of the multiple peaks, the diversity of environments, the diversity of the ways people live, the different kinds of social arrangements. You could have multiple ways of living a good life and mm-hmm. that's something you seem to concede you, you agree that there might be a plurality of good kinds of lives and or at least that's what it seems to be with yeah, the, yeah. the peaks analogy am no, i that, right about that yeah definitely but i think if you're talking about human beings i don't think there are that many peaks or even necessarily more than one when i talk about there being multiple peaks I'm really talking about all possible minds. So, uh, so it's, but yeah, yeah, you know, it's possible that so there then are why, multiple why, peaks. Why are for you so people. convinced that human beings are so similar that there aren't multiple peaks for human beings? Well, I, I don't know. I guess I'm agnostic on that question. But there, I, I think there are probably. Well, if you if you just take sort of a, a local consideration, because you could you can talk about peaks in terms of the collective, and you can talk about peaks in terms of individuals. So it's it's reasonable to ask, you know, how could I, as a single person, uh, find a peak for my own moral landscape? So you to have the best life possible, given who I am in the world. Well, uh, do, you know, does the best life possible uh, entail my eating eggs for breakfast or granola? 
today? Well, it probably doesn't matter. So that's like if I'm on a peak or somewhere near a peak, those are choices that are not going to displace me one way or the other. So there's so there there are multiple possible situations which are superficially different, which just for argument's sake entail the same level of well-being. You know, I, I could have I could have one job versus another job, and those I could be equally happy, let's say, in both those jobs. Um, but we know that there are many more ways to not be on a peak, whether you're speaking of individuals or collectives. There are just many more ways to be uh, unhappy, to be unhealthy, to be to f- fall into conflict, to not be creative, to break things as opposed to fix them. And so um, it, the, my commitment to moral realism is is that is not a commitment uh, which entails that there's only one right answer to moral questions, but it does, there could be multiple right answers, but there are very definitely wrong answers. There are, there are ways to screw it up. better and worse answers. Yeah. Yeah. So you're not, there's, there's no sort of fear of, of just relativism that lapses into, I take it that, that Sam's view is that there at least is a universal metric. The metric that's determining the peak, I guess. Well, I I, w- I I talk about well-being, whatever that is altogether. So just and so it's it's positive states of consciousness that, insofar as we understand them, and I I just think they're they're horizons past which we can't see and and perhaps can't even imagine in terms of the kinds of positive states that minds can experience. I mean, what what would it be like to be a creature a hundred times? more intelligent and perceptive than than we are and you know what sort of well-being could it could it be um available to i you know who knows but i mean i think that i don't think it's 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 vacuous to posit that those states of consciousness are possible given this given suitable minds uh clearly those states of consciousness must be possible whether or not we can discover them and this is true for just just human beings. I mean, just imagine that I mean, you have all the people in the world who um, you know, we have we have seven billion people in the world. There are, there are clearly states of human consciousness that not everyone uh, can have access to. I mean, some people aren't smart enough. Some people aren't sensitive enough. Some people can't pay attention closely enough. Uh, I mean, we're not we're not all super athletes of of cognition and emotion. But so that so that so we know that we could just by by happenstance wander into a circumstance where uh, some of the the greatest places human minds have ever gone are now unavailable to the the the, the better part of the, to all of the existing human beings and, and would have and, to be rediscovered men- by a next generation. But these so these mental states matter in as much as they might provide well being that 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 is that is as I take it the common denominator and I. And I I get that this sort of we might not know what the neighboring how high the neighboring peak is, and this is is probably the role that you uh, think science is is going to play. Like it's going to tell us sort of maybe even the possible peaks, or at least maybe the burden is on us to study all all of the people uh, that we can to figure out exactly what the highest peak might be currently. But well, and just to tie that back to the responsibility question, the Oedipus example, could that be could could that sort of way of looking at moral responsibility be its own kind of peak that 
science could vindicate well let's let's table the the science can vindicate question because you know there are an infinite number of questions that have straightforward right or wrong realistic answers that are in principle something that that science could 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 adjudicate but um, in practice science never will so I mean the example I, I love to use is how many birds are in flight over the surface of the earth at this moment you know we, we know that the the answer to that question is just an integer. We know when I say, oh, it's got to be 15, we know I'm almost certainly wrong, uh, right? So this is a, a domain of pure realism, but science is never going to figure that out. And, and in any case, it, it already changed before I could get to the end of the sentence. So um, I think there are questions questions about what is a circumstance of greater well-being for specific minds. I think th those those questions have answers, even if they are multiple answers, and even if we can't find them. And the, some of these peaks could be really weird. Some of the, you know, there, there, there could be a peak of even human culture, where if you if you tuned our brains a little bit differently, or if you just had, you know, a, a generation grow up in isolation with with very different cultural expectations, yeah, they they could have some bizarre arrangement that would be. Um, just as conducive to well-being as anything we can get going. And it could entail something very weird w with respect to criminal justice, but in, right? You know, like but in principle, yeah. th this would be epistemologically sort of, it's, it's, it's not opaque. I mean, it really does mean something that, that, that we would know that these people, even if you by accident tuned their brain, that they would actually be sort of having more well-being. And and I think that I I want to like figure out whether or not uh, because what Tamler's saying, I, I really think that that you're being a consequentialist in a way that that doesn't allow for Oedipus's view to enter into a peak as to be defined as a peak unless there is in principle a way in which this has improved well being. Well, okay, because well, or else I, I well imagine yeah. something more even more egregious than than the Oedipus story, something like Shirley Jackson's story, The Lottery. Do you remember that one? Where they yeah. they just you know sacrifice someone you know, at random, yeah. um, and that I think keeps every it... kid ha is has to read that it's a federal <laughs> right law. exactly yeah. <laughs> but... What I r recall is just that you know someone is basically is plucked at random as a scapegoat, and you know with an experience of more or less less um, sadistic jubilation that the whole village sacrifices this person, stones yeah. him to death. And that that manages to slake all of the antisocial tendencies of everybody for the rest of the year. Um, let, let's just say that let's say we're wired in such a way so as to, so that something like that is possible. Um, now, I, you know, I think there are reasons to suspect that's not true, and that that all of that would come at a cost. But if if it was just a fact that you could have a society that did something arbitrarily evil that actually made everyone uh, just as sane and just as compassionate and just as happy as we could ever be with our, you know, Rawlsian intuitions. Well, okay, fine. That's that. You know, I would have to accept that. I don't think there's any reason to believe that that's true or, or possible for us. But if you changed people enough, you know, uh, you know, then then th everything is potentially possible. And, and that one of the reasons why I think it's important to think in these terms is. Uh, you know, we, we are at some point going to be in a position to wonder whether or not we should actually tinker 
with our genes and our neurochemistry and our you know our basic uh, you know our, our hardware and our software in such a way as to change our moral intuitions. And then and and so when you talk about changing moral intuitions, then then you you then you really have to step outside the, the relativism and wonder well what would be good to, what what would be the best set of moral intuitions to have, um, and then I then that again falls into this what I think of I think somewhat straightforwardly as a navigation problem. There are states of consciousness that are available, uh, whether we know they exist or not, and. The question is, how can we? How can the most of us get to the best places most reliably and avoid the worst possible misery for everyone? And I, I think that's whether you you could just drop the category of mor- morality and just say, okay, morals don't exist. I'm a moral nihilist, right? There's no good and evil. There's no, you know, I'll drop all those categories. We still have this navigation problem. There's still it's still possible to suffer immensely to no good purpose. And it's still po- possible to experience bliss and rarefied states of consciousness, I, and 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 that difference still matters. I'm a little I'm a little uh, curious now as to whether or not your position entails a sort of free form moral exploration that might uh, that might actually lead to horrific consequences because somebody has to explore the landscapes in order to find the peaks. So. <laughs> Well, well, you so don't have you don't have lottery. to do anything, and I think I think there could be well, an argument for I mean, staying ha- near a more a local maximum and not being too I, ex- exploratory. I, well, I mean, ha- have to do it. I mean, I mean, compelled by our own moral views as as a as an ought. I I think that you you believe in an ought, and that maybe that moves us to to the question that I really wanted to get to, sort of a meta ethical question is, which is why. Why should we care at all about other people? Um, it, it seems to me that 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 is very much a moral claim, and you embrace a particular answer that mm-hmm. that we should, as sort of, adopt some form of consequentialism, which means we should really care about the well-being of others, um, and you you sort of avoid having to ground too, you know, you ground your claims about well-being a lot in science in, in the moral landscape, but I wonder what you ground that particular claim in, uh, which to me, it strikes me as a very moral claim. There's nothing, right. there is nothing that gets you from where you start to to the belief that, that we ought to care at all about maximizing the well-being or any other sort of well, it does when you once you consider what kind of world you want to live in and how deeply social we are and how dependent we are on the the welfare and productivity and and trustworthiness of others. So, you know, we all want to live in a world, or at least I think we should want to live in a world, which is to say we will be better off in such a world where we have every reason to trust and peacefully collaborate with creative, happy strangers, right? And we're not living in compounds ringed with razor wire and just terrified of uh, the people who may, you know, come down the street Sam, or Sam over the sounding hill. more like a Kantian than, than I ever have sounded. <laughs> but, 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 but Sam, I, the question is, this is the free rider problem, right? Like right. we're going to live in that world no matter what I do. Why well, not, shouldn't I point. skim off the top 
Yeah, I love that people have these internalized moral rules about not cheating. Yeah, that, that it allows me, me to fuck everyone over and get the most advantage. Well, like, well, no, but but then, but you just have to keep following that. What kind of person do you do you become, or do you have to be, to have no conscience, um, to have no scruples, being a free rider and cheating and 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 uh, even sabotaging the the projects of others? Um, I mean, this is like, you know, what does it do to you to actually lie to other people with without well, it makes you an asshole, form? but I'm not sure why I ought not be an asshole, I guess. Well, well because because, again, if it, you're it, the it, kind it, of person that would if, if you, it, it, all of that comes with consequences. Asshole. I mean, like what kind of what kind of person, what sort of what states of consciousness and, and, and states of your own personal relationships are closed to you? emotionally and cognitively. I mean, psychopaths, you know, psychopaths can get a lot done in this world and they can, they can, um, have certain kinds of fun. There's no question, but I happen to think that there, there are kinds of relationships and kinds of well-being that they're, that are just not available to them. They don't really know what it's like to love someone really. And not in certainly, does it come down to enlightened self-interest that it's in your enlightened self-interest to be a good person? Is that your view? Yeah, no. My 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 view is that selflessness and self and wise selfishness more or less converge. That that you really, you know, that when you when people describe the best experiences they've had in life, they it's rarely the time where they manage to you know fuck someone over totally and and or or imperceptibly and get away with it. You're, you're talking about people who who have extreme experiences of of caring about the welfare of others and participating in maximizing that welfare is you know the people who are huge philanthropists or you know, whatever and and but i think it, it it sounds like it might be circular in that case i mean we we have we're sort of hardwired in some sense if you buy if you buy certain evolutionary accounts to care about about helping others and and all that good stuff and that because there is a fit between a certain level of of fair treatment um and and what what sort of makes us feel good then then that's why that's why it seems to be associated with positive mental states but i'm actually you know i i just i don't it it boils down to a an empirical question in a way that makes me uncomfortable Sort of as a endorsing, yeah, as a con, as a as somebody who who says who who actually believes that there are rules or at least constraints on acting on other people, and I endorse that uh, in it sort of in in these immoral ways. That even if my enlightened self interest or wise selfishness told me exactly, I mean, you know, imagine I had a, a perfect computer algorithm that told me just sort of how much it did a cost benefit analysis for all of my actions. I imagine that some of my selfless actions, in fact, they often bring me some form of misery. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I could go to a therapist and have them remove my desire to, to say, please others in some contexts, I actually think it would make me a happier person. But, but but let's say those, those cases exist, right? Where you're actually doing something that's making you less happy uh, but yet you feel like you should do it. Well, there, I mean, there are various possibilities there, but it, it, it's quite possible that it's not even such a good thing you're doing. That it, that actually there's there's a better there, there's something higher on the landscape where you feel better and you're actually doing something 
better in the but, world. But other people really are part of the equation for you. So it, oh, if yeah. I am making myself miserable by making, you know, 10 people really happy because, you know, I decided to say serve as is chair of my department or some some stupid shit like that. Like I'm maybe this gets to the partiality question that why not weight my own happiness just slightly higher than that of everybody else's so that I avoid situations in which I through, you know, some moral scruple um, or biology or cultural upbringing where I feel the need to actually sacrifice some of my own well-being for, for the sake of maximizing that for others. I thought that what your view implied somehow is that there is an ought there. It's that... independent. It's not held hostage to the empirical claim that doing the right thing and being a good person is always in your self-interest or even usually in your self-interest well i I also thought you know your consequentialism it was inconsistent with that view i mean because it sounds like from what you're saying right now that we could do more research on human psychology and it could turn out that actually being a good person is second or third place to really for 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 some people anyway who Mm -hmm. are good at getting away with being an asshole First place is being an asshole when you can get away with it. Kind of ring of Gaiji's problem. Yeah, well, well, I don't think it's it's nowhere written that it's easy to be a good person or even easy to follow your own enlightened self-interest even when you understand it. But it's still, there is an empirical fact about what somebody's enlightened self-interest is. And there right. is empirical facts about what, they need to do to maximize it. And if it doesn't turn out to be the case that being moral uh, achieves that end, it's not the means to achieve that end, then then you would have to say that that they shouldn't do it. Well, right? the, the, shouldn't, the, the, the shouldn't doesn't exist somewhere outside the the possible states of consciousness of all the minds involved. So you you can imagine someone who is just wired badly. Let's say he's a a psychopath of some sort who get really gets yeah, tremendous. Could be wired well. No, just no, wired but differently. It, it wired differently so that he behaves in such a way that makes everyone around him miserable, but he gets immense pleasure from it. And if he if he behaved in in a more benign way. Or, or a way that we found uh, more congenial to our happiness, he would be suffering immensely. You know, he's got, you know, he's he's hyperactive, and, and he can. He, the only way he discharges his energy in a pleasurable way is to, is to, you know, break shit for for other people. Um, so that, that's totally possible. So this person is, you know, he's very unlucky to sort of be in the wrong world, and we're unlucky to have him in ours, and. There is a there is in that case some kind of zero sum contest uh, between his enlightened self interest and ours, and that so that's a a just a bad circumstance for all involved. Now, uh, to to be a moral realist about all this, you you ha- we have to say well, if we could change this, if we could change his brain or change our own, there what changes should we introduce so as to maximize uh, you know well being for for everyone i think those that would have right answers i mean uh, uh, whether but or not we could implement them part of your the answer to to my question that you're giving which is why include other people in the denominator at all so you know what so we have this sort of calculation that we're making 
is just reifying that that the right way to find the equation that maximizes for other people is to it, it's sort of part of your answer what i'm asking which is why like you keep saying well well how to maximize it it may okay. turn out that this guy isn't maximizing it for everybody and so we would want to change his brain but there is nothing on your view that i can understand that that condemns him morally. well well no i mean given what we are given what it is to be a human being and given the most desirable and pleasurable and fulfilling experiences that are on the menu for us insofar as we know them, getting along well with with others and peacefully collaborating with them and feeling states like compassion and empathy and sympathetic joy, you know, when, when to, to have the happiness of others actually increase your happiness as opposed to subtract from it. Um, these are These are the states of consciousness that are more or less in the center of the bullseye, and, and they're they're deeply social. And so if you are not capable of those states of consciousness, um, I think you you really are missing something. If you if you don't know what love is and you don't know what trust is and you don't and you although it could very well be that that person has has a brain in which sort of the the amount of well being that he or she is able to experience far surpasses anything that we we know. Well, and in fact they were sure. born on exactly the right planet. Um, because they can, you know, take all these suckers and chumps like us. And... Or, or they're just, uh, to, just to make it more real life, they could be people who are capable of experiencing deep love, but just for their particular group. Right. And, and that's a good example. And, like, it could be it, that Americans or whatever, you know. Right. Like, but, that, uh, but but then the, the question is, what happens? So let's let's say you have a, a group of, you know, neo-Nazis who get immense fulfillment out of their brotherhood and they love their kids and they you know they listen to Wagner and they they you know they they weep with with um that's uh Pizarro's favorite composer. <laughs> so, so so you got these guys drink. And then the question drink. is what are they missing, right? You know it's like a, I, I there's no question that you could have a what we would consider kind of a pathological uh happy happy tribe. Uh, that's exporting its misery to the to the rest of the world by you know some kind of um, perverse uh, entropy shedding effect where it's like they either they are they're, they're racist they victimize others but they're having a a, a grand old time doing it um, the the you know that could be a very positive experience for them. I, I'm not suggesting that, that they must be terribly unhappy and just not know it, but there's certainly states of consciousness that are not available to them, that they're not experiencing. They don't know what it's like to to uh, be filled with love for all humanity because they're, they're, they're precisely not filled with love for all humanity. I, but I but just, also but they, they, they're just, they're vulnerable. That, that, that's not a an orientation that works in our world. Someone's going to come over and crush them. You know, I mean, that's, but, but, but all, good that, but all that matters is they crush everybody else first. I, you know, yeah, I, but, it, but that that's still not going to be a world where that still can't be a peak for humanity because it is by definition, a, a situation where a, only a tiny minority have any fun at all. But it doesn't I mean, have to be a peak for all of humanity. It just has to be a peak from the, for them. If oh yeah, they sure. Get away with what they're doing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, but uh, my philosophy right? just says that that's not as good as a world where but, that you everyone else is also very happy. Well, the the world might not be as good, but from their point of view, it is better for them to be like how they are than how 
you want them to be. Well, no, because you know, I, not... I, I, what I would say is that they're not, they would actually be better if they were playing, they're playing the best game they know how to play. I mean, everyone is pl- almost by definition playing the best game he knows how to play. Um, but and, and some people are playing very small games that give them a certain kind of pleasure, but they're totally captivated. There's a range of conscious states that, that they don't even know. And not just not just I mean, when I talk about conscious states, it can seem just ethereal. But I mean, it's 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 also anchored to the world There's a range of you know, kinds of collaborations with people and kinds of creativity and kind and social institutions that have, haven't been invented. And all none of this stuff is going to happen because we just have a bunch of people, uh, uh, you know, playing, you know, video games or, or uh, you know, collecting crap, uh, you know, off of eBay. And there's just no, they haven't conceived of what is possible in the future. And we're never going to get there. That's, it's possible for everyone to be wrong about what is what is potentially available to creatures like ourselves, and the the claim I'm making is that there are there are frontiers of experience that he's clearly not aware of, and some of them, if he, if we could dial them directly into his brain, he would surely prefer some of them there to what he's got. There might be frontiers of experience that you're not aware of too. The of course, Wagner of course, experience the whole, I, I, you know, absolutely. Marching goose stepping experience. Have you ever done that? Like, I mean, I mean, anybody can say that, right? I mean, or the ability to destroy a planet, you know, might be just beautiful. <laughs> it might be I, okay. I but, but again, when, whatever my, my fear is that you're masking a value. Cl- what's fundamentally a value claim? So when you when you say the moral landscape, you you are um, the entire landscape of all humanity. You are just. You're just sort of drawing a sand in the line and saying, "Look, the I think right, it's a line in the sand, a line in the, the sand." Is the expression <laughs> that that you're actually just saying, "Look, like this is this is the principle." If you want me to justify it metaethically, that's a separate conversation. But you you can't get no, no, from no, science yeah. to valuing uh, all of humanity. Well, no, no, I'm just saying there are, there are right and wrong answers to the question of of how various s- states of consciousness can be reached. And so there's there's a basically I, I I just proceed from this base case of the worst possible misery for everyone, right? So there, there's a there's some state of the universe where everything that can suffer suffers as much as it possibly can for as long as it can, right? That's a just it's almost tautological, but it's it, it's just there's a there's some worst case for everything uh, that we can imagine. And basically, any state of the universe is better than that, right? Just moving well, better, better in some. I guess, I guess, maybe that's the right place to start because I actually wonder what what it is. I mean, of of course, it's better for all of the collective, but I I'm just, but that is fundamentally a moral claim that you know why why care? Or maybe another way to say it is why aren't you including animals in the moral landscape or or trees or something? I, what it, what is it that it's I'm including what everything is it that makes uh, you include all of humanity. But th- these are um, these are two different. So the, I think the the question the, there's two questions. One is just what is what entitles me to to say anything about morality in a universal sense and to talk in in morally realistic terms. The other is understanding all of this or granting all of this. What gives any individual the rationale to really care about the well-being of others. Why, why not be radically selfish, even if you granted in the abstract that a universe where everyone thrives is better than, than a universe where only half the, 
healthy moral creatures thrive. Um, but you know, I, I grant that. But still, but, but, I, I just want to eat yeah, you know, right. hot so fudge what sundaes about all day a universe long. where you thrive and sixty percent of the world doesn't thrive versus you thrive a little less and 56% of the universe thrive. Like the extreme cases are a little too easy. I mean, those are the tough cases because that's the case of our lives right now, right? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of we could make the world better and we would thrive. We're thriving now, but we would thrive a little less if we made the world a little better. Why should we do that? You know, the well, Peter Singer problem. Yeah, exactly. Peter. I mean, Peter Singer is the tough case. So I, I don't have an argument against most of what Peter Singer recommends. When, when he says that, you know, all, all of us are malignantly selfish essentially, and how we spend our time and resources, because just with just with a, you know, a 10% change in what we pay attention to and, and how we allocate our funds, we could be saving lives all day long that we're not saving. And, you know, the three of us are doing this podcast now. We could be spending these hours uh, just focusing on how to save yet more you know, starving children in Africa because of how we spent our day today, we haven't saved any, right? Now that, and so we are, yeah. in some sense, moral monsters. Now, I, I just take that, that hit. But you are, you, are you, you open yourself up to the possibility that empirically you might actually get, get some, some un, un, counterintuitive consequences that, that being a good person the way we define it uh, is, is the worst strategy well, yeah, but that's only right. in a sufficiently corrupt uh, and unhappy circumstance. So, I, like, I'll get I'll get e- emails from people who'll say uh, this was actually in response to my book Lying, where I was, you know, arguing that lying is almost always you know, dysfunctional and you know, not worth doing, and and your life gets better, and everyone else's life gets better if you if you're you're honest across the board. But then I would hear from people who were in circumstances where. Telling the truth was just going to be just starkly maladaptive for them because they're they're surrounded by people who would disown them or hate them if they knew what was true about them. Uh, you know, their 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 wives would leave them, their kids would hate them. Whatever you know, these were often you know religious circumstances right. where people had lost their faith, or someone who's applying for for jobs. You know, they're in a job market where um, they, you know they're they're feeling like they need to pad their resume. Because right. they know they know right. that everyone is padding their resume, right? So they're just at, sure. they're at a disadvantage. So, but these are these are clearly not peaks, right? These are these are situations where things have broken down, incentives are, are misaligned. Yes, it may be possible that you are in a circumstance where the only way to uh, achieve a modicum of happiness is to be a real bastard. Or to or to act like a sociopath. I mean, in self defense. I I feel like you're kind of deflecting the question. Like the issue isn't that you have to act like a sociopath or be evil. The issue is that you can just you could be happier in the society as it is right now if you just didn't do the right thing as often as. I mean, it may turn out that. Just magically doing the conventionally moral thing also always brings people's enlightened self-interest. It always maximizes it. But that, it, w- it wouldn't be magical. That it wouldn't be magical. It could be possible, but it could so— Well, no, no, but— it, it could be I, that there's I, I this nice balance where you sort of dick people over in certain circumstances where you can get away with it. 
and you and, and I think that's the, the the worry that Dave keeps pressing, and it doesn't help to point out that that there might be sociopaths who in on, in corrupt circumstances it might be in their self interest to behave in a certain way or well, people it, who have to act like sociopaths and, and moreover it doesn't it doesn't bother me that so, i mean there is there i believe that there is some force to what if the world acted in this way but that the force of what if the world wow. acted in this way get that uh, drop yeah imaginary <laughs> right if if but but that is a a principle in itself that 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 I endorse, and there is there's no reason, there's no good reason for any for for your view to endorse that. Well, so uh, there's, I guess I'm on one level I'm losing sight of the concern here because the, your the downside, whatever downside you're go, you're worried about, is going to be expressed in terms of the lack of well being or the unhappiness. That gets exported to others, right? Gets, so that, 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 that's all at the heart of it. To... Why? Why you like? I get that you yourself, Sam Harris, are concerned with the well-being of others, but metaethically, there is nothing that has gotten the rest of the world there. Like there is, I don't. Right? Well, so Peter Singer just says, "Look, I believe that that maximizing well-being is 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 what we ought to do." That is sort of a principled stance that a consequentialist takes. Well, here, you, okay. So I, I see here you're refusing is, to just say that is my principle. No, no, it's, know, but it's not just a, it's not just a principle. It's, it's just it's it would not be an accident. So I, to go, to go back to what Tamler just said, it would be an, it's magical if there was a a true uh, conformity between this what mac, what what maximize the well being for the group and what maximize the well being for any individual in the group. And I I would grant you that there could be some kind of looseness of fit there where, you know, there's a little bit of free riding that may be very pleasurable, a little bit of corruption, um, a little bit of doing stuff without getting caught, which may uh, be a local maximum for any individual. But there's not going to be a radical disjunction between what is good for peop- any individual in general and what's good for everyone, or what's a peak for everyone, because we are so, we need each other for everything. I mean, we depend on other people for absolutely everything. You know, I got a flat tire yeah. yesterday, and I had to get the tow truck had to show up, and then, and, and I mean, it's just like the fact. Right. So I, I I guess that then then there is the only thing we're saying that I mean maybe we're agreeing here that is. If there is a so you can imagine that I get a huge spike in utility by every twenty actions, one of those actions screws somebody over, and the math just works out such that even when you take the groups overall, like you know the average happiness, that it it's it's a uh, it is more overall happiness that I screwed somebody over, and you're okay with those instances, and I I, I guess I want to like. You know, well, well no, I, I, but I'm not okay because I, I think those all of those come at a cost. That if you're if you're if you look at consequences in a very fine grain way, when you look at what it's like to have a mind that is really sensitive to the the, the psychological uh, payoffs of you know good moments with people and bad moments with people, if you if or, and and really sensitive to the the cognitive and emotional right. overhead of having to keep track of lies and and what that gets you when you when, when you ha- when you no longer have to do that then you you want to be 
uh, classically uh, really virtuous. You know, well, I mean, but then uh, you're just denying the possibility that there is this thing like that of that of actually acting in a way that might screw the the group over in a way that maximizes. So all I have to posit is a mind that that evolves that actually for which this is true. And well, I, I'm and just saying that person say is the group will weed it out. We will. I mean, that person's no going to be. But there is no force to telling that individual to not do that. Oh no, there is. A, there is a force because it's not actually going to be that compatible with his happiness. Uh, but when no, he's in I'm the company of others. There is a creature where it is compatible with his happiness. That is, so long as the group never finds out that every 20 actions he's screwing somebody over. I mean, you're just denying the empirical possibility of this. And all I'm saying is just posit that. Posit that there is this creature right. that is right. the perfect, you know, in evolutionary terms, he's the perfect cheater. He's the perfect free rider. Or just and, a good cheater. Or just good a good a good cheater, right? And and in fact, his brain is just wired that he gets like this this rush of dopamine whenever he gets away with it. It actually turns out that nobody ever catches him. What I'm saying is that there is no moral force to telling him that he ought not do that, on your view. Well, if you're, you know, it becomes, uh, I just have to accept it. If you tell me that he's wired in such a way that if he behaved in a more classically virtuous way, he would by definition be less happy. So that any yeah. any any move toward virtue would come at a cost to him in in his own in his well being. Well then, yeah, I just have to accept that. But then I can still stand outside of that and say, well, would it be good to change him? Would it be good to change his genes? But, it, but good, but you would know, it be but, good but, but for where everybody are you else to change? Uh, yeah, on what pedestal are you standing when you evaluate? No, this, no, right? but you're, you're taking this view from nowhere by default. Like you're taking this like sort of impartial view as your default stance. And what, but, but it could all be. All I'm saying. I, I just think it would. We could change him, uh, unless you're saying that he is the happiest we, I mean, a human so, being. Yeah, could it might be. be in our self-interest to change him, but that it so, could be in his, it, no. It I would mean, be in his self-interest too. It just may not be available to him. I mean, if he, so. If there uh, undoubtedly there would be states of consciousness that would be better than the ones he's inhabiting, uh, uh, given the requisite changes in his brain, which would also be compatible with virtue, right? But, so, but it, all it, you're doing is saying that this guy doesn't really exist. No, I'm just saying that you no, know, he might exist. I mean, let's let's say this is, you know, you take someone like uh, Kim Kim Jong Un, right? You know, it's like how happy is he? Well, let, let's just posit him as really happy. Right. You know, he's got he's got yeah. millions of people starving outside the palace gates um, and he's just, you know, sipping cognac all day and he loves it and he just gets off on everything totally, that we think is yeah. weird. Yeah. So I mean, I totally buy that we should stop people like that, but there's nothing there's no moral force to the argument that from his perspective, he should stop. It, we, we, yeah. So that but I don't see nothing follows from that apart from I mean, I, th I think in, in reality. I mean, assuming that he's he's sufficiently similar to the rest of the human beings we know, um, I think there is a situation, a, a better situation for him to be in that he would get more pleasure out of, and he's just unlikely to find it. And uh, that, I mean, I, you might be right about that, but that's a very controversial empirical claim that. Well, it's uh, just we don't know. You know, we just there's just there's no way no to know. Idea. But right. I mean, I you know, but but you can you can sort of dimly experience this in yourself i mean the play you 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 know what the pleasure of conflict is but i believe that i'm wired in that way I, I i guess i just we're going in a bit of circles because i'm just positing that there is a creature where yeah it's just not true that there that these like i'm just positing that there really is a creature that whose mental states 
they've achieved some high level of mental just bliss that you will and I will never know because we're actually wired to care about other people. And that we would achieve higher states of consciousness if we were more like them. Oh, well, so, you know, so yeah, like but that... I, I grant that totally. So, I mean, this is this is one example I think I used in the moral landscape where you could have a peak with, you know, perfectly matched sadists and masochists, right? So it would just be a world where, you know, the sadists were abusing the masochists and, and everyone is just, you know, infinitely stoked by this arrangement. Um, you know, and it would look just, just horrifically weird to outsiders like us, but it's let's just posit that they're happier than we will ever be um okay great i can i just have to absorb that but it's not it's not something that that you know, resonates with me but i i just grant that it's conceivable that there's a some I, kind of ethical arrangement that that is weird but nonetheless totally fulfilling given the the, the, the requisite I, minds I'm making a slightly different point, and I, I don't know that we're going to make progress. We should probably wrap up, but I'm I'm actually making the point that even in that example of sadists and masochists who are perfectly balanced, you are using the denominator as the well-being of everybody in society, and that is what I'm saying is a moral claim that can't be that that is just a principle in a way that science can't get you there. And once you grant that step, that we should be impartial, we should care about everybody in society. I mean, should I think is a a very high level concept, and there an intuition, and there are far more basic ones. And so, so for instance, I mean, this is my my worst possible misery for everyone argument. If if we should do anything, it's avoid the worst possible misery for everyone. But, I mean, it, but it, why? It, That's what well, I'm yeah, asking. So, so why? that question, that, yeah. that, that intuition you're using, that, that, that you think you could stand somewhere to ask why it would be worth avoiding yeah. the worst possible misery for everyone is not actually taking, a, is based on not actually taking a moment to understand what it means to posit the worst possible misery for everyone. I mean, there is no, there's no place to stand where you could say, um, Maybe we sh- maybe there, we shouldn't avoid the worst possible misery for everyone, or maybe there are, we, we should. There are other priorities we might You're have. You're standing there, on the same plate. You're standing. There the is no place. other I mean, priority, I guess, and the worst possible is... misery for everyone is a circumstance that eclipses any other cognitive or emotional commitment. You can't even form a concept of anything else you could be doing with your mind. If okay. you're being how about tort- the worst possible misery? I mean, how about just Hume's just classic: the destruction of the world to the scratching of my little finger. Right. What's wrong right. with that? Well, be, because when it's just when you get into the details, it's just what it what does it mean to be and that and that immune to the suffering of others uh, and and to have no collaborators, you know, to have well, all no you're one saying to, is that that person would be happy. All I'm saying is one really happy person and everybody miserable. And all you're saying is that that person couldn't be happy. Listen, well, I'm just I, saying I I'm saying that I'm yeah. saying that person, that person couldn't be happy. I'm not saying that there's no possible. I mean, one of the scary things about artificial intelligence, from my point of view, is that we we could well build something that could be happy in that circumstance yeah. and could have the power to create that circumstance. I mean, that's, that's it's 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 conceptually coherent. I just don't think it's evolutionarily coherent, given the kinds of creatures we are. But just to connect everything back up and and, and wrap up, because. It, it sounds to me then like your your consequentialism, the the sort of the, the the broader consequentialism, is definitely compatible with the idea that people can be morally responsible even if they don't have libertarian free will. 
your skepticism about moral responsibility, deserved blame, deserved punishment is contingent on the view that if people thought that way, for whatever reason, that would lead to greater states of well-being, greater states of consciousness. And I mean, maybe human beings are too similar for this to be true, maybe not, but it might actually be that, you know, this group over here in this country, in that environment, um, you know, they they should look at moral responsibility one way, and this group they could look at, should look at moral responsibility the other way, and as long as th- those those perspectives are conducive to their particular well-being, then you it sounds like you shouldn't have a problem with that. Am I right about that? Yeah, I would describe it differently. I, I, I would say that certain kinds of knowledge or certain kinds of clear seeing or certain uh, facts always kept in view may be hostile to certain forms of well-being that uh, you know that, that are local maxima for us. You know, so there's some kinds of knowledge that it's not worth have, having, say, it undermines some other project or some other way of being in the world that we need. That's possible. It's not that uh, moral responsibility really makes sense in any deep sense. I think I think cutting through the illusion of free will does cut through this this idea that anyone really is the author of of uh, his or her actions. And uh, you know, further advances in science are, are just going to put more and more pressure on that. The more we know about why it is. Someone did exactly the what issue they did. Is whether you can deserve blame even when you aren't the author of your actions. Well, the my, the issue my question is more focused on that issue. Which well, it's not so much deserve blame. It's just it's just what how should we behave in uh, given the state of our our knowledge about uh, human minds and human brains, given our given the interventions that are possible, given the deterrent effects of certain kinds of punishment, etc. It's uh, yeah. So again, my my consequentialism allows me to say, well, uh, if it if it just so happens that punishing some crime kind of arbitrarily uh, and harshly uh, it just has this great effect, given you know, the, given some quirk in our psychology, it just it just basically nullifies criminality across the board. If you uh, people people who send spam, by... you know, like the, the spammers get the worst punishments, right? You know, you, yeah. you know, the serial killers get, you know, 20 years, but spammers get you just, like, just get killed on, on pay-per-view television. Um, uh, let's just say that's that's true. I'm not saying there's any reason to believe that that's true, but l- let's just say it were. And, on, and, now, and however we looked at this consequentially, it's better to just kill spammers. Well, then, then yes, I would have to say we, we should be killing spammers. Uh, and, okay, so, and, but, so that, and that's a slightly different answer because that you're saying that in fact many of our intuitions might actually be violated and justifiably violated on your particular view. I think what Tamler was saying was you there there seems to be a possibility where what what we're saying, or at least what Tamler's saying, what you're saying isn't that different. That is the a world in which we hold people responsible by holding certain attitudes towards wrongdoing is. On your view, it seems like the right kind of utilitarian world, and whether or not like there is a, some sort of deep, deep agreement that there is blame isn't so important as it is as, as for people to hold those attitudes and hold other people responsible and act as if they are blameworthy. 
because that will br- will bring about the best consequences on your. But there's no as if you are blameworthy. It's like no, that's no, what yeah, blameworthy yeah. is. With uh, that, yeah, and that's that's uh, I think the critical point. That is what we yeah. mean by blameworthy. Right. But, and 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 I'm and, and just to add on to what Dave said is that it might be different depending on who you are and where you live. But, but the, the one beings. thing I don't want to grant, I, I, I see what's creeping in there, and, and it's possible to have some culture where uh, certain things that shouldn't be offensive uh, are hugely offensive, uh, and certain things that, you know, there are certain things that should not be sources of psychological suffering, but they are huge sources of psychological suffering for the participants, given the way they're uh, acculturated. Well, I guess, um, what's the should there? Well, it's just it's just it's just nowhere near a peak f- uh, on the moral <laughs> landscape. So, oh, like you have I, you have people uh, who right. okay, yeah. Uh, okay. I thought I thought the should was such a bad word. Well, like it's <laughs> like a, like a, no, it's like a tra- you know a traditional Muslim culture where you know the idea of desecrating a Quran is worse than the idea of you know accidentally dropping a bomb on on school children, right? So when you you know they're far more exercised over the former than the latter, uh, and they're willing to die and watch their children die to rectify the sacrilege that a Quran was mistreated, right? So they've but, but got their. I I, 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 I want to resist going to the extreme cases. And but this is a real case. We know that we know this exists. Case. No, I know, but it's yeah. an extreme case. It's an extreme case on the real. End of the spectrum, right? But, but I mean, you, like, but you could argue. I mean, uh, so there are a few things you said. I know you, you could, but that's not what I was. That I, 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 I sometimes feel like you're dodging the questions by going to the extreme cases. I'm looking for the pure example that's easy to understand. I, but I'm saying that one thing you could argue is that, listen, these guys are actually suffering a lot and much more than than you suffer when, you know, your your kid gets sick or or you know any of these things that that, that are, are real world problems, these these so-called imaginary problems actually cause huge psychic harms for these people. So it is it is actually just as bad to burn a Quran. That if you're con- if you're going to be a I, consequentialist, it's it is just as bad to burn a Quran than it is to burn a child because it causes even more suffering for the people who care about it. That yeah, I think maybe is maybe one way to- that, I, I think that's a, ultimately a bad argument because it's just not – while that may be locally true, it's clearly closing the door to so many other better worlds and better states of consciousness and better institutions, et cetera. That may happen – I mean that may I, apply I agree. To us I agree with everything you just said, but I also don't think it answers the question at, at all. Because I'm not talking about you know something that well, clearly is based on a mistake, clearly okay. leads no, no, but to more suffering in general. It, I think that same thing. The reason why I reached for that is that you know I think that same thing applies to us in ways that we don't necessarily currently understand or even glimpse the the, the possibility of. So it just could be that. We don't see how costly our our moral intuitions with respect to vengeance and blame and guilt and retribution are, and we don't know how much better our society would be if we. That could be true. I just don't. I I think that I'm really a, a bit perplexed here because we're t- we're moving a bit from the question of uh, cultures differing on how and when they hold people morally responsible to the question of the content of of the rules that they're holding people morally responsible for. And I, I think 
I think that one way to just to just maybe uh, illustrate this is that that you are acting in in a way you're you're holding these people in other cultures very morally responsible. You're you're blaming them in a sense that you may not want to use that word, but you're saying sort of let's take a view from the world's perspective. And I think that you ought not be uh, you know blowing things up. Um, because you disagree with them. And you are acting in every way that I think Tamler and I want people to act when they see a case of moral wrongdoing by somebody who seems agentic, who seems to have intended something mm-hmm. bad. So you are saying, I, here's what I define as bad, things that are overall bringing about bad consequences um, from this world's eye view, and I don't want you to do it, and so I will punish you, I will tell you that you're wrong, as you often, I think, do. I will hold this certain attitude toward you as if you ought to have done otherwise. And that's all I mean by blame and responsibility. And it sounds as if you're on board with that. You just don't want to use those words when we, when we talk about that conversation. Well, no, it's just, it's just I realize when I get down to the micro level of why someone really, really, really did what they did and, and could they have done otherwise, my intuitions, there are a few very conventional states of mind that are not compatible with me paying clear attention to what I think is true in that moment. And one of them is hatred. You know, I, I, don't, I don't hate sure, the Taliban. Sure, but, but it doesn't entail hatred. I mean, there is a way in which what you are doing is a good thing in the sense that you are, you are holding people accountable and, and writing yeah. things and telling things. And but I would, I would hold, hold, I would hold yeah. grizzly bears accountable, too. I mean, in, insofar as the—, you know, the the sure, only way if to they stop were a misbehaving to our language and our reasons. There's no reason not to, be, but but they're not. They just don't happen to be. No, but I would. If a grizzly bear is is you know marauding uh, through the town, you are going to shoot that grizzly bear. That's holding it accountable. You're not going to shoot some other grizzly bear. No, um, it's not necessarily holding it accountable. It's just stopping it. Yeah, I, well, I don't so, think I have that cognitive attitude, that cognitive stance toward a grizzly bear. I, I, but it does seem like you have that cognitive stance toward. A no, lot I of actually, no, no, I don't. There are a lot of people who are no more open to reasons than grizzly bears. All I'm saying is that some people are, and you distinguish between these, and you hold them accountable in a way that you don't seem to hold people who are not. Like, you know, I, I just don't see too much of a difference unless, I, in fact, I think that. The very distinction that we make between agentic reasons, responsive people and the attitude we hold toward them is good on your account because it brings about better consequences because it's a different way of sort of sanctioning people who who sort of should be doing something else. And it's true that when you take a step back and you say, well, at the end of the day, it's all matter in motion, that you might sort of take a step back from those human feelings or that cognitive stance that you have. But in I, practice, I don't know. I, I actually don't know that I even hold people accountable in the way that you are. Uh, so, so, for instance, there was there was a, a case in the news recently that I heard about where a guy was playing with his guns, and he had some friends in the house, and he this was just just in the cover of the New York Times a few days ago, I think, where he was he was doing some kind of Western style, you know, quick drawing of his pistol, <laughs> and you know, like an idiots everywhere, he didn't know it was loaded, and he shot and killed a pregnant woman sitting at his kitchen table, um, you know, by mishandling this gun. And, you know, these, these were friends of his. He was absolutely horrified. You know, his life is now ruined. He doesn't understand how the gun was loaded. Uh, he's an idiot. And now his negligence has cost the life of a, a pregnant woman and her unborn child. 
but now there's this, you know, now the question is, you know, how should he be prosecuted? Should he be spend the rest of his life in prison? Um, I don't the case uh, where he did it by accident and he's an idiot. Like, that's not the tough case, really. People but think like, he he should definitely be in prison, well, right? I, and, right. People think a lot of things, but that's not what we're saying. Right? No, but I the reason is if you really believe that he's no different than somebody who put the bullets in his gun. No, no. That okay. No, he he's, he he is different, but the difference is in his the, the the how liable he is to do that thing again, right? So the person who intentionally killed a pregnant woman is the kind of person who likes killing people. Right. So they, I, although, that's, yeah, but that's why we question, lock him the up. The idiot might the idiot might do it more often. I mean, and and so you know, well, no, no. I just yeah. I I would just take as uh, I think it's very likely that he will never behave this stupidly again, or he won't be he won't behave uh, stupid in precisely this way ever again. And that he's you know he's this is the why, worst thing that's not? ever happened to him. I mean, well, I'm just I just because he's I'm just assuming I, I could be I don't actually know enough about this right. particular case, but just imagine someone who has truly made a mistake and is horrified and and uh, would do anything he could to to not have done it. Um, this is not a guy who's going to go out and just shoot more people. So the reason to lock him up, you know, the the consequentialist reason to lock him up is to make it clear to the rest of society that. Among the among the bad things that are going to happen if you are if you handle your guns this negligently is that you will go to prison for it. It's an additional reason to be careful. You know, I don't know. I don't know that there's that much difference between, you know, I, I think that still like the cl- the clumsy gun collector who is capable of accidentally shooting multiple people over his life. You probably just, you know, the distinction that you're making between what we would do to him versus the intentional uh, evildoer um is the just the sort of the just the distinction that I want to make at a local level and that saying, you know, society is better off by by punishing people who intentionally cause harm and not people who accidentally do. I I I feel like we're almost the same sort of 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 compatibilists here. Um right. And as long as you both want to kick my ass if I run over a kid, then we're all on the same page. Same page. <laughs> Luckily, we are. This is called moral luck. We want to kick your ass no matter what. Right. Right. Well, the the the, the uh, clumsy gun collectors may still not be as bad as we are for not having saved all those kids in Africa today, the way Singer told us <laughs> That's to. <right. laughs> That's right. <laughs> we are <laughs> assholes. So, what, moral, what, what punishments are, are available for us? I mean, I look at like I feel like that last scene in, or that whatever scene in in Schindler, Schindler's List where he's like looking at his gold ring and and you know and thinking about what what he could have done had he only swapped it. I'm here looking at my MacBook Air and my expensive microphone, and I'm like, all I see is African kids dying. But here's the no. thing: is that if you are going to spend money on yourself rather than doing what you ought to do and helping uh, starving children, go to our website and click on the <laughs> Amazon link. <first. laughs> Good, good way to close. Uh, <laughs> oh uh, man! Uh, okay, uh, thank you so much, Sam. Uh, yeah, yeah. As yeah, always, thank you guys. we 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 battled again, and uh, but I actually think that we've actually made progress a couple, both times. So cool! It was fun. Yeah, we thanks will. a lot, Sam. Good man. Good.